0: Welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. We have a show that's released every other Friday, and this is episode 81. And on Horror Movie Podcast, you'll often hear in-depth horror movie reviews, especially for new releases, with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. And I am your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City. And my co-hosts tonight are...
1: Dave Dr. Shock Becker from just outside Philadelphia, PA
0: wolfman
2: josh j as long as you can still grab a breath you fight you <laughs>
0: breathe keep breathing <laughs> oh i so enjoy our little chats on this podcast i <laughs> I, I, I really do <laughs> Because I never know what you're going to (laughs) say. That's true. Well, before we get rolling into the episode proper, I thought it'd be fun now. The wolf man here says he has some horror news that he wanted to discuss. And yeah, there have been a few developments. So Josh, take it away, sir.
2: Well, there were three pieces of Friday the 13th related news that came out today, which I thought... Was great, I don't know, they didn't necessarily come out today, but they were kind of making their way around the internet. Um, the first is uh, I, we were told by one of our listeners, uh, Kagan, um, more details about the Friday the 13th video game. Um, and he left those in the comments at horrormoviepodcast.com and left some really compelling stuff that would get anybody, I think, excited about a Friday the 13th video game. Um, Kagan mentions. Sean S. Cunningham is the creative consultant. Tom Savini is designing all the kills. Kane Hodder is doing motion capture for Jason and Harry Manfredini is doing the score. So that's all super exciting.
0: That all of that sounds like, and I'm not doubting Kagan. Uh, I'm not, but I'm just saying it sounds like the, the fanboy or fangirl hype, you know, that people would want. It's like, um, wishful thinking or something like that, like wish fulfillment or something. Yeah. But, but, It sounds like Kagan is saying, hey, this is the real deal.
2: Well, so today on um, horror movies, uh, I guess it's Mm horror-movies.ca, which is a Canadian-based horror movie site and other places throughout the web. Decent
0: site, by the way. Yeah,
2: this story was released. It says Kane Hodder lends his killing expertise to Friday the 13th game. And they actually have photographs of Kane Hodder in motion capture suit doing kills with pitchforks ripping people's mouths open carrying like a motion capture weed whacker
0: um oh they stole our idea i've always wanted to do an edge trimmer like a a weed whacker (laughs) slasher film always wanted to do that anyway
2: Anyway, if you head over to the Horror Movie Podcast uh, Twitter feed, you can find links to these, or maybe we can put them in the show notes. I'll send them to you, Jay. We can get them here in the show notes at horrormoviepodcast.com. But anyway, so Kane Hodder is in the flesh doing them. There's photographs now on the internet of him doing the motion capture for the video game. So that's awesome.
0: And you know what I love about that, um, Wolfman? You know what's going to be amazing is, and I know this is probably obvious to everyone here, but... The fact that they're doing that means that it will look like Jason actually doing them in the video game. I mean, it will yeah. really capture his, his um, physicality and his presence. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. I Yeah, it.
2: it's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. Um, one other bit of news that came out is that the Friday the 13th television show is happening on the CW network. And that is um, been reported on since around August, I believe. But they're now saying that, yeah, it's official. Sean Cunningham is going to be involved with that. It's going to be like a reboot style show um, with a, a detective story kind of at the heart of it. And it's going to be about Jason Voorhees. Hmm. Uh, So, yeah, it's going to take place at Crystal Lake. So it should be exciting.
0: Okay. Um, Hope so. Yeah. I mean, if it's on the CW network, how far can they go with it as far as like kills and stuff? Well,
2: that's one thing I was wondering. We had some listener feedback on that as well. Um, You know, I guess Hannibal, one of our listeners, pointed to as uh, an example of something that is, you know a regular television station. It's not, you know, pay cable station. And yet they were able to do the gore effectively. So yeah, maybe that's, maybe that's possible. Um, CW, you know, they do decent stuff now. I, you know, I know that it's probably is surprising to a lot of people, but you know, the, the arrow show they do and the flash show they do are very popular shows. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean the flash, I have watched the first season of the flash with my little boy and, Definitely not horror, of course, and it's no masterpiece or anything, but it's it's certainly entertaining.
2: I think it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I watched it with my son too. He loves it. My kids are always zipping around the house pretending that they're Barry and Insane. Cisco and <laughs> Caitlin and stuff.
0: My son is the Reverse Flash, of course. Of
2: course, of course he is. <laughs> yes, raising him to be the Reverse Flash. I <laughs> know uh, that's Zed Costner. Uh, is the listener who pointed that out. He said, "Although Hannibal is on NBC and had great gore, TV's changed a lot. It might work, and so I'm hopeful." As is
0: uh, Zed. That's right. Because I mean, honest. To be honest, Josh, mm. my big TV days were like 1981 when The Dukes of Hazard was actually on prime time at 8 p.m. on Friday nights. I remember that era. That's funny, dude. It, it's embarrassing. <laughs> Um, so yeah,
2: um, I, I I hope, I mean, I hope it's okay. Obviously, you know, there are mixed reviews on MTV scream and, and CW isn't, you know, in the bigger picture known for great content, but I think they're getting better. And so I Mm -hmm. hope we're going that direction. There's also, um, there was a cool article that came out today at the time of this recording, um, which is you know, probably a week, I guess, before the listeners will hear it. So hopefully this isn't all old news. Yeah. Fangoria was doing an interview with uh David Bruckner about his new anthology film Southbound, and he talked a little bit about a failed attempt at rebooting the Friday the thirteenth franchise. So we've talked a lot about is it going to be found footage? Is it going to start over? And he dishes on the whole story and tells um what happened and how that that project died at Paramount and so now we know uh, Blumhouse has taken over the property so I think this is a clean slate project it's not going to probably have anything to do with these Uh, but David Bruckner Bruckner talked about how um, they did a found footage draft and he was really into it and he wanted to make sure he found a way that would work legitimately and he wanted it to be a one camera he didn't want to have like a thousand cameras all over the place Mm -hmm. and um, he worked really hard on it and then the Studio came back and said, never mind, we're scrapping the found footage thing. Let's not do that. And so then they did another pass of the draft where he wanted to do kind of like Dazed and Confused meets Jason Voorhees, he said. And Mm -hmm. basically have it be like a last day of camp coming of age story with some heavy Friday the 13th content.
0: That's interesting. Well, as much as grief as I have given Mr. Blum. I I I would actually be interested in seeing what Blumhouse does with it. I mean, I I think it at the very least I think they'll respect the property. I think that's what horror fans worry about a lot of times. Yeah. But but I also believe that I mean, despite what he said in that AMA thing, um at some point i bet you there will be a found footage like i mean i think it'll be kind of like found footage like we've seen from paranormal activity franchise and yeah that that doesn't bode well but who knows maybe it won't
2: hmm. well, we'll see speaking of blumhouse um one of the pieces of news is they have three new films um hit netflix yesterday uh, so Telling. there's three brand new Blumhouse horror films, one called
0: Curve. And you're saying these are streaming on Netflix? These are now
2: streaming on Netflix, yeah.
0: Okay, all right. Visions. Saw that. And The Veil. Ooh, I, oh, I'm excited about The Veil, actually, so that's, that's cool. Yeah, I, I was excited. I figured you knew that because you're Mr. Streaming Guy, you know, mm-hmm. movie streamcast and all yeah. that. But um, I was excited because I know you had talked about Visions and I'm like, oh, I got to tell Wolfman. But I'm like, ah, he already knows. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. And um, also Sal wrote a pretty interesting review about Visions over at, um, I guess he did it during our 31 Days of Horror. Um, I think he wrote it on the Haunter uh, post. But, mm, okay. Yeah. Great. Listener Sal doing his duty. But um yeah, so this is old news even for us as we record, but something that I thought we should talk about at least, which is the passing of Angus Scrim. Um he is the actor known as uh the tall man in uh the phantasm films. Yeah. So that's a bummer.
0: Yeah, and that you were saying, Josh, not to, you know, reveal too much of your personal things, but that really affected you.
2: Well, the David Bowie passing was the bigger uh, the bigger one that affected me. It was a it was a rough week. I think between for a lot of people between Angus Scrimm, David Bowie, and um, Alan Rickman. You know, those all kind of hit at the same time. Um, yeah, I, I am. Kind of a fan of Phantasm. I there are films I didn't initially love. I had a lot of weird high school experiences with the Phantasm franchise. Um,
0: Oh, that's intriguing.
2: Metroid, actually, but
0: that's even more intriguing. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just kidding.
2: (laughs) And so, um, yeah, it's it's uh, something that we're going to talk about here soon. We're going to do a crossover show with the sci-fi podcast, and we'll do uh, one and two on our show, and three and four on their show?
0: Did they go for that?
2: Yeah. Yeah, Matroid's really excited about that. He's a huge, like insanely big fan of this franchise and of the director who of course also did John Dies at the End and Baba Hotep. Um yeah, Matroid's a huge fan of of this whole thing. So
0: Nice. Well, I see that I know we've talked about, you know, is his Phantasm Ravager going to come out? Well, it's it's in post-production according to IMDb, so I think that'll be this year i bet you it'll come out in october don't you think josh
2: Uh, yeah probably so matroid again is like way into it and he was telling me that they shot it in secret and had the whole thing finished before anybody even knew about it and all the stuff
0: so i don't know yeah well that's you know i guess
2: they got the tall man in there
0: well thank heavens
2: but we'll talk more about that in the
0: future Yes, we will.
2: So that's about it. Those are just some of the things I wanted to discuss briefly. Um, I mentioned again the Friday the 13th video game um, on our last show, and several listeners uh, wrote in and told us that the other big horror game to check out is called Until Dawn. That's the one that um, is really amazing right now. So I guess if you haven't seen or played Until Dawn and you're a big gamer, check it out.
0: Yeah, See, I just, I, you know, I am such an addictive personality. I haven't even touched video games because I just, now that I have a family, it's like uh, that would ruin my life if I get hooked on something like that.
2: Well, to be honest, I am going, I'm going to go in head first when this Friday the 13th video game comes out. I'm just so excited about it. I don't know why Uh, one of the listeners was giving me a hard time about being excited even for the Friday the 13th sequel or reboot even though I was dissing on all the other non-original content, like the Amityville horror, which is totally fair, totally hypocritical. I own that, but I'm still excited and I can't help it. Um, <laughs> Nothing to be yeah, ashamed so about. I, I'm going to take up gaming again. I haven't played, I haven't literally, I literally have not sat down and played video games for fun since I was in seventh grade. So, but
0: you know what we should do a seventh grade type slumber party, yeah. where you invite me over to your house and we will play the Friday the 13th video. All night team. long in our sleeping bags. Brother, I'm serious. We'll do it. That'd be hilarious. And your wife can take pictures of us and make fun of us.
2: She could never know about this. Oh. Not get, <laughs> the marriages will not last. But um, what we should do, I know it's the wrong crew, but we should do it with the Movie Podcast Weekly crew because I, I think doing this with Carl and Andy would be really hilarious.
0: <laughs> I totally agree. And um Ryan... Uh, he's a gamer and he's actually coming here to visit utah in april and so um will it be out by april i don't
2: know i I really haven't done enough research to answer even any follow-up questions at all
0: okay all right well everybody just stay tuned for that and maybe we'll have um slumber party pictures (laughs) (laughs) all right this is either the moment that been waiting for the moment that you've been waiting to fast forward in the podcast but uh, I've been promising that um, I have this little analysis this this new approach that I'm gonna just kind of try on you guys here for as a solution for classifying horror because on so many horror podcasts I mean we have spent hours and hours like fighting over what's horror what's not horror so I'm sure like Probably 90% of the listeners out there are like, oh, are they going to do this again? Well, I'm trying my best to kind of contribute to the, the horror film criticism here, like the film theory of horror, and I'm trying to give us something that we can use as tools to actually get past this hurdle that we keep running into. Unfortunately, Dr. Or that
1: we keep throwing up.
0: Yeah. But I mean, it just happens, right? It's almost unavoidable because anytime I've actually listened to a few different horror podcasts over the past week or so, and it seems like all horror podcasts run into it because, you know, one person will be like, oh, I like this movie. And another person's like, that's not even horror, blah, blah, blah. You know, like, that's what we do over and over. And it's tiresome. But and yeah, I, every time I send out a tweet about one of our lists or something on Twitter, like I get like four replies about how this movie or that movie isn't a horror movie. Yeah, right. And and so I, I see it, you know, I'm not just trying to like stir up trouble, although I know a lot of people suspect that about me. But I really I would like to kind of <laughs> f- further the conversation and, and see if we can actually make some progress here. Go ahead, not to Josh.
2: derail you before you begin but we had a couple listeners on Twitter had some theories about how this might go <laughs> and uh, Sal Roma says prediction by the time Jay of the Dead is done no escape will be considered the most horror of all horror movies
3: <laughs> that's funny
2: <And> David <laughs> says or it will lead to Jay murdering the other hosts on film in an attempt to create the purest horror film
3: <laughs> that's and Sal says scary
2: I, it would be fun to hear Jay go all Norman Bates in doing everyone's voices to keep HMP alive after their deaths. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, guys, I don't like the direction this conversation is going.
1: No, I know, but I would almost—I'd uh, almost like to hear
0: that. <laughs> the, the, un- That's
2: what Sound <laughs> said. He said, "Aren't you the, at least a little bit curious to hear Jay trying to do his best Josh Ligari impression?"
0: <laughs> oh man, unfortunately, <laughs> I am the worst at impersonation, so I, I would never fly. But I'm sorry about oh, that. Oh, good,
2: because I don't want to hear it anyway. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's what I figured. So, yeah, and unfortunately, like, Kyle Bishop, Dr. Walking Dead, he was planning to be here. He was looking forward to being here. And I was really hoping that we would have his insights because he's he amazing. He do not want to be
2: stuck with us.
0: Right? <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. He's just amazing at this kind of thing. And I really think that he could kind of help out, help facilitate such a conversation but anyway, so here's what I did, guys. In- instead of making this hours long, because I- our previous episode, I really enjoyed it. We got really nice comments from people who said they enjoyed hearing us riffing, but I actually miss getting to the actual movie reviews, and so I don't want to spend like forever on this, but I'll just kind of put it out there. Let me first paint a little picture, okay? this is um, Imagine this imagery in your mind. Um, see... We fight all the time because it's almost like we can't trust one another's classification enough to communicate clearly or in a a universal way about what a movie is like. And I've said before, like from like film art or a lot of the like film history textbooks that, that you get in like. Film history class, they they will say that, that part of the reason genre was created or like kind of assembled together is because the audiences could know what to expect and they they saw conventions that were familiar to them and they enjoyed them and so um, the whole concept of genre became this really nice way for people to communicate about um, what kind of film they were getting or what kind of film they wanted to see more of and that was nice but the problem is because the the boundaries of genre have have spread and changed and and so forth. Like now it, it's not a clear-cut line anymore. What I picture in my mind and what's happening all the time on our horror podcasts is picture a beach, okay? Have you ever seen kind of like an aerial view of an ocean? Like uh, where the tide is washing up on the beach and you know, you know how, it's, mm-hmm. how it's uneven, like in some places the tide washes in farther than in yes. other places. And and I really think that that's what the boundary line kind of looks like now. Um, this doesn't have to do with my theory. It's just a nice little picture I wanted to paint for you, but uh, I think it's not, it's no longer a straight line. Yeah. All right. But that's interesting. So, but but ultimately at the heart of You thing, want to
2: build a seawall so that water just hits that seawall.
0: <laughs> that's right. And <It> just <laughs> pisses everybody off. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So, if you think about, I mean, really in simplest terms, if we were g- going to be really reductive, if you boil it down, horror is ultimately man, okay, or woman, right? Just, we'll say humankind- versus death. Okay. Or, or death versus mortals. Yes, there are like exceptions. I mean, already you could be like, what about Freddy versus Jason? Blah, blah, blah. You know, like, but I'm just talking like fundamentally speaking, (laughs) that's what we've got. In horror, we've got like a monster or a predator of some sort. It doesn't have to be human. It doesn't even have to be a living thing. Um, it just has to be a life threatening force. Okay, that's, that's key. And then we have a victim who is the prey. Now, here's the first element. And by the way, at the end, I'll summarize all this so it's much shorter and simpler. The first thing, and we've talked about this before. I, I love it that David hit on this recently. Kyle and I talked about it like several episodes ago. It may have been like early 2015. I couldn't find where it was, but we talked about tone, tone the tone of a movie, and a lot of times I think I've heard other horror fans agree that the tone of a film really helps us to know what it is. And so, how yeah. do we establish tone? Well, here's my theory. Um, are the lead characters, okay, and when I say lead characters, um, you could say protagonist or The the characters that the audience is most likely to identify with, typically. Okay, are the lead characters victims, or are they victors for the majority of the film? Okay, now that establishes tone, because if your lead characters are victims, meaning, and when I say victim, let me define what that means. A victim is not in control of his or her mortality. It's out of their hands in that case, I would submit that the tone is closer to horror. Um, if they are victors, that means that they are in control of their mortality. It's in their hands. And this is the important part, guys. Or they believe, at least, that it's in their hands. In other words, a fighter, someone who's ready to take action and fight, then I would submit that the tone is non-horror, not That's horror. Interesting. So yeah, that... I mean,
2: that takes... Okay, so I like that. So does that so that says that a a vampire movie would be a horror film, but maybe a vampire slayer movie wouldn't be a horror film.
0: This is where I need your help because there are interesting examples like that. Well, let me answer your question though, real quick. The thing is, you're right. There are vampire slayer because I thought of this. There are movies that are like that. Nobody in this world would like disagree that's horror because like the 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 main characters in that sense are fighters but there are other victims scattered throughout the film. They're not the main characters. So I guess maybe, maybe I need to amend that and say it doesn't necessarily have to be the main characters. It's just, are there a number of victims? But, but go ahead, Josh, what else were you going to say about it?
2: Well, I was actually just contradicting my own statement. I, Cause I think if you look at a film, like I was just teasing that idea out, I guess a little bit further. If you look at John Carpenter's vampires, um, they're very much in control at the beginning of the film. But they go through a really rough patch where most of his group is killed off.
0: Yeah, they become victims. And
2: now victims. The, there's the mega vampire is after them. Most of his crew is dead. And, you know, this woman he's with has been infected. And they're on the run.
0: <laughs> yeah, and that incorporates in the victor portion, either they're in control of their mortality or they, they believe that they're in control of it and maybe they're not actually. Yeah.
2: Well they were, they learned that they're not.
0: Right. So yeah. so if let's just say, you know, just for you know, argument's sake, let's say we we determine that the characters are victims and it's like, okay, this is a horror film. Now this is where I want to bring peace and love and harmony to to the community. I submit guys And girls, there are three categories that exist now in modern cinema when it comes to horror um, categorization, okay? The first one, and I actually, I did a lot of looking up special terms because I wanted to get the exact right word. And the best word would be prototypical horror, but nobody's going to go around saying prototypical horror because it's kind of, it doesn't roll off the tongue. It's a little bit annoying. But but if you look up the word prototypical, it means having the typical qualities of a particular group or kind of person or thing. The other version that I thought would be an okay way to call it is archetypal horror. And that means archetypal is the original pattern or model, model of which all things of the same type are representations or copies, like a perfect example. But what I decided would be easiest, and I think what What everybody would be most happy with is just calling this classic horror. And when I say classic horror, I'm not just referring to old school stuff, but I'm referring from everything from the pioneering days of cinema like Nosferatu to The Blob in the 50s or The Haunting in the 60s or Halloween in the 70s, The Thing in the 80s, or even like modern stuff like The Conjuring, And this is like when I say classic horror, I mean, basically, generally speaking, you've got a monster that preys upon victims and picks them off. So that would be like the classic sense when people say that's not a horror movie. What they really mean is that's not a classic horror movie is what I'm suggesting here. That's group one. Okay, that's category one.
2: So to me, when you talk about the victor, the first thing that came to mind was Ghostbusters. These guys are kind of going around fighting ghosts. It's, you know, they are the aggressors in most of the film.
0: Yes. So, yeah, either they could be in total control, pretty much, which Ghostbusters mostly are. They're very effective. Or they could just be someone that's, like, sick of it, and they're going to fight back, you know.
2: Right. So in this definition, yeah, Ghostbusters isn't actually a horror film, basically.
0: Yeah, in this one. Yeah, exactly. Like as far as determining the tone. Yeah, exactly. So did you guys want to say anything about classic horror? I mean, this is like the traditional idea of horror, as I think most people like to think about it.
2: Well, when as you're talking, I'm always thinking about the fringe movies that people debate whether or not they're horror, right? Right. And so I'm thinking a lot about some of these survival horror films. You know, I can't help but you know think of those because we've talked about them a lot recently.
0: Yeah, I got them um, covered here.
2: But also, I'm thinking about um, something like Tremors. Like Tremors seems like a classic format, even though a lot of people would say well, it's more a co- it's more of a comedy. It's following that monster. Uh, Classic setup, basically.
0: And speaking of setup, that is a perfect segue into the second category, which is where I think Tremors would probably fall, and that's hybrid horror, is what I would call it, where you have a blend of genres. It's it's got some unmistakable classic horror elements, okay? Meaning it has a monster or something from the familiar traditional horror, and it's mixed clearly with other genres. And and I I would like to submit this might not be true right here, so I'm not going to stand by this, but I'm just saying I think that the hybrid horror movement really started in the 80s and because I got a suspicion that that when we started seeing comedy horror because the 80s horror got really lighthearted even in some of the slasher films and and so I think when comedy horror came on the scene That's when we started getting genre blends, and I would call that hybrid horror, and that's why I think Tremors falls into hybrid horror.
2: So, if we're talking about the Friday the 13th franchise, for example, the first film really fits your definition of a classic horror tale. Yes, sir. Whereas, opposed to Jason Lives, for example, we're getting into hybrid horror.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I would say that, for sure. Yes. And then... The one, the third category is the one that everybody gets mad at me about, like which I would like to call primal horror. And the word primal really um, is the closest uh, word that I could get to really identify um, what I mean by that. Because primal, if you look it up according to Merriam-Webster, it means very basic and powerful. I thought about calling it instinctive horror which is similar relating to, or based on instinct, based on feelings or desires that do not come from thinking or learning. They're prompted by natural instinct. And so, what this is, primal horror, it has to do with kind of universal fears, things that are hardwired into us as a survival, um, as as an organism. Now, you could say right away, because I, I, I can hear where people are thinking right now. They're thinking, okay, but if Jason's coming at you to kill you, that's universal fears. But hang on real quick on that. Uh, and, and this also, primal horror, has a, a bit of a realism to it. I think it's possible it's something that could happen to any one of us, any day of our lives when you get up and you leave the house. And so, I give examples like... um. <laughs> no escape. I know you said, Josh, that no escape seems very unlikely that that would happen. But um, there's a scene in that when the father of the family has to, for the first time in his life, kill someone with his bare hands. And that's horrifying. Um, there are lots of things like that, like um, the movie Buried. Um, where the guy wakes up and he's inside of a coffin or open water, they're stuck in the water with sharks. Um, and, and and a lot of times with primal horror guys, a lot of times there isn't necessarily a monster or a lethal force. I mean sometimes it could just be the the elements like uh, man versus nature. and there's not always an evil element to the primal horror either. and this is really more of a fringe classification. And um, maybe I put it in there just to accommodate some of my definitions, but like, I, I really feel like there, there needs to be something to identify the fear and the terror that can happen to a human being, even if there's not like a monster involved. So, those are the three. So, so basically, to recap, you got to determine the tone. Uh, are the characters victims? Or are they victors? And if they are victims, then it goes down into this horror categorization. And it's either classic horror, hybrid horror, or primal horror. What do you think?
2: I like it. And I I especially like it if that means you're going to stop saying something isn't horror and you're just going to say, oh, well, that's that's a hybrid horror film. (laughs) And it's just going to make you more accepting of like a top 10 list, for instance. And we'll just, you'll be able to go through and say... Here, now we're talking about a primal horror film. Now we're talking about a hybrid horror film,
0: <laughs> and you're not going to get all bent out of shape. <laughs> well, I, I'm. That's my. That's actually my vision for the entire horror community. Although I mean, I don't expect them to adopt this, but I think it makes a lot of sense. And I am trying to establish peace. But there, the, you bring up a good question because it's like I was looking at this. And I'm like, okay, well, how, what's Bone Tomahawk then? Because I think there's also another little problem with Bone Tomahawk, which I rated mine. What my number two horror film of the year, but let's look at it um it's mostly it's like ninety five percent a western and and there are what we would call Bill shetty hates this, but horror elements in it you could call you could call them monsters, but they're they're just people basically, and there's not very much of it in there so there there comes to a point where it's like. See, I think we need to be able to sort these out, and I guess, I guess, I would call that hybrid horror if you really pushed me on it. But um, I don't know. What do you think about something like that? Because I know Josh, you, you said you didn't think Bone Tomahawk was in there, but I listened to like, for example, I listened to the Twenty Two Shots Moods. I, I, I always say their name wrong. It's a little hard for me to remember. I listened to their top ten list, yeah, and a lot of those guys and and the listeners that they pulled had bone tomahawk in there and it's like yeah there's not much horror in it but i don't know what do you do with that it's
2: definitely a film that was embraced by the horror community um in general and so i think maybe that is a reason for it i also know that moods listens to this podcast so maybe he's just a fan of yours i don't know <laughs> but um I don't know. I guess for me, yeah, I, I think it's very... See, I don't mind horror elements. I think it's a great term because it's very descriptive of what we deal with a lot mm-hmm. um, with crossover films and primal horror films. Yeah. And I think uh, Bone Tomahawk does have some... It is a crossover horror to a small degree, I would say. And the horror that it has is very primal, I would say. Um, but I, but to me, it's a Western with horror elements. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't mind that. That doesn't... I'm not afraid to say that, and I I think that's why I would have liked to have Kyle on this discussion because I'm very permissive, I think, in general.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, mostly because I don't know. I I want to know. Does it matter ultimately? I know it matters. Um, in the nuts and bolts of what we're doing, like making lists and things, and saying, okay, like, <laughs> are we going to include this on the list or not? But I'd like us to be able to move on, move beyond this, in some, in some. to to some degree you know i'd like to kind of get beyond this conversation and just get into deeper discussions of what these films are about because yeah there are some very powerful themes at the heart of bone tomahawk for example yeah what i want to know is if you're going to accept bone tomahawk as a film as a horror film I and mean, you've recently, I uh, heard, seen The Edge, and I have. I just, I purposely did not listen to your review because I wanted to talk with you about
0: it. Yeah, The Edge from nineteen ninety seven. Everybody, yeah, which is a
2: film that we uh, tried to get you to watch, or at least recommended to you on the uh, Grizzly Zone One Bears Attack episode that we did. Yeah,
0: I ran out of time. I fell asleep.
2: No, it's fine. Yes, yeah, but, I, but I. But you did get around to watching it, which is awesome. Yes, and I, but I. I wanted to hear your take on that and whether or not then that film. Uh, you would describe as a horror film. Mm -hmm. And in that conversation, uh, if you could kind of touch on this too, uh, the new release film, The Revenant, and um, No Escape while you're at it.
0: So if we could (laughs) could
2: maybe talk about this area while we're kind of on the subject of Bone Tomahawk.
0: I I love it. Thank you. Yeah, so, okay. The Edge, to me, so if you go back to tone, all right, um, for anybody who's seen The Edge, the premise is, You've got this billionaire and this like fashion photographer. Basically, they get stranded in the wild, and they have to survive in the cold wilderness. And they also encounter a, a man-eating Kodiak bear that comes after them. Um, so, yeah, to answer your question, if you go back to the tone, the first question, are the lead characters victims or victors for the majority of the film – well, these guys decide right at the outset they're they're gonna survive this and that they're gonna you know fight and survive. So, because of the tone question, it comes out as not horror to me. So it doesn't even fall into the categorization portion.
2: But well, I, I mean, you can say that about No Escape as easily as you can say that about The Edge. They're they're making the choice to try to survive, but they're trying to talk themselves into it more than believing it is my is my thought on.
0: This. Well, it's true, but I think there's a difference between. A f- like for lack of a better phrase, a fighter's spirit, so to speak and and, and, and in the edge they have a fighter's spirit. I mean they are ready to battle like and and that's why war films, I think somebody maybe David brought up okay so we're gonna say every war film's a horror film and it's like, well, the soldiers presumably or at least the way they're often depicted in films, is having a fighter spirit where they believe they're in control and they're going to try to do this. Yes, they're scared, but they have a fighter spirit. Whereas in, in no escape, they do not have a fighter spirit. They are scared out of their minds and they are merely trying to survive because they are clearly victims.
2: I I believe that is also true of the edge is all I would say. I believe that they are victims. The entire film, they're on the run they're running for their lives and in, in the definition of survival horror the longer they are in those circumstances the more dire their situation
0: becomes yeah the more deadly it becomes that's true but and and I won't go into any spoilers for the edge but um you know for the majority of the film like if you're weighing out like in in runtime like their their victories versus their victimization um I I think they're very strong. I mean, the the Anthony Hopkins character is an intellectual. He's a bookworm and he knows a lot about basically everything. <laughs> and yeah.
2: so, so he's I, a strong protagonist. You're saying he needs to be out of his. He needs to be more of a fish out of water. Yeah, I or think, I think in that film specifically, and probably we don't want to go down a rabbit hole of talking just about The Edge right now. But right. I think he is. Um, A learned man who has never been put to the test and that's one of the tensions of the film is can he actually apply this or is he full of crap basically yes and i don't believe that they ever actually felt confident i think his posturing of confidence is just his survival mechanism
0: and see, I'll take that. Like, for me, I mean, I'm like, well, that's a fighter spirit that he's manifesting.
2: And I'm yeah. actually okay call, calling... I would have called The Edge a thriller before I met you. But I think if you're going to call a film... Many of the films that you call survival horror, like Frozen, for instance...
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: I mean, freezing is the major problem that they're having in The Edge when not related to a bear as well. So, I just think... um I don't know. It gets a little bit dicey there. And, I'm, and I wanted, I just, I'm curious. I was hoping, and maybe you can tell me if your new genre classification fixes some of these problems we're having. Um, I don't see a huge difference between, in terms of horror, um, between a film like The Revenant. In fact, I would say that The Revenant is more a horror film than Bone Tomahawk. I would say that the edge is equally a horror film as Bone Tomahawk. I would be happy not calling any of them horror films, but I kind of latched on and got on board with your survival horror idea, and so I'm broadening in that sense, I felt like we were broadening our horizons a little bit <laughs> then i but I feel resistance from you to only want to apply that to certain films and I think to take David's point from you know his comment is this just justifying the films you like and not justifying other films.
0: well i love um and people on this podcast might not be aware of this i love um the revenant it has actually become now my second favorite film of all time so i love time of all time holy I, cow i freaking Have you seen
1: it more than once
0: i saw it once and i was blown away and i was i was like you know what i don't know for sure as i was watching it i'm like i don't know for sure but this might unseat my number one of all time, (laughs) but, but I, I just, I absolutely loved it. Have you seen it yet? Dr. Shock?
1: I haven't, I have it on on the list. Actually I'm going to probably be seeing it next week along with uh, the hateful eight finally.
0: Oh, I'm so happy for you. Both of those experiences are just glorious and wonderful. Yeah. I'm looking forward to them. So so, yeah, I mean, I recommend they're both tens to me, but, um, so. I
2: did see it. I, um, I called it, I said, the revenant is kind of like the gray and the edge filtered through the new world and bone Tomahawk. <laughs> that's my, I, I put that on Twitter and Facebook is <laughs> my hashtag lazy, but effective reviews.
0: And that's pretty good. Actually. I mean, I think that's, that's pretty accurate now. See what you're talking about. So this question you just posed a moment ago, I think that that really um, speaks to my, my third bucket there, the third category, which would be primal horror. Now, like, for me personally, the Leonardo DiCaprio character, who's the the lead, the protagonist in The Revenant, um, he, he has a fighter spirit to me all the way. And so, to me, even though he is definitely victimized, he does not have the, um, he does not take on the persona, like, or the inside, like, he doesn't internalize being a victim. He is a survivor and a fighter. So So, that's why... You know, so it's,
2: basically, and no revenge film could be a horror film then, kind of with this rubric, because he is, he becomes a fighter. Uh, he is kind of, um, I don't want spoil to the, spoil the film at all, but um, there's right. an event that happens that kind of um, emboldens him, right. I think, to survive.
0: Yes, but I mean, we, we learn early in the film that he's, he's been a pretty established fighter and survivalist even prior to the awfulness that that we see in this film. So
2: how was that any different from, I mean, uh, Patrick Wilson is a fighter just every bit as much if actually less, but, but his intent is every bit as much as Leonardo DiCaprio's Um, Patrick Wilson in bone tomahawk. I should say Uh, Kurt Russell in bone tomahawk. These guys are fighters.
0: But see, remember bone tomahawk. I, I would put into the hybrid horror where it has some, See, and I'm not classifying it off of um, Patrick Wilson alone. I'm, I'm talking about the hybrid horror where you have some classic horror elements, because I could argue that the cannibals in Bone Tomahawk are monsters, basically. Yeah,
2: I could argue that there is one of the most brutal
0: monster attacks I've ever seen in The Revenant. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that could be hybrid horror? I would. I would. I still. I have, it could be. You know. It could be. I, I guess it could be. But I would go more with if if you were going to force me to like categorize that, which which I wouldn't because it doesn't it doesn't pass the tone test to me, which is why it doesn't get down into these three buckets. But if if you were, I would put it more on the primal horror level because like the, there is no there is no evil per se in that attack. It's actually. It's actually for a very good natural reason that the attack occurs, but I know we can't Let go it. Can that. We can say
2: that about backcountry too. I mean, Jay, come on. We at some point <laughs> right those are pick vi- a aside, buddy, you're you're floating. That's No, no, no,
0: no, no. No, those are victims. In backcountry, they're clearly they're clearly victims. I mean, they're just they're scared out of their minds and they're weak. I mean, if there's weakness that's manifest like 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 wussiness, like whiners, then they're victims. <laughs>
1: What would you? Where would you put something like, because um, I was listening to your description of, of the primal horror, something like the movie The Impossible?
0: Oh, I, I'm so glad that you said that, because um, absolutely, that was one, Dr. Shock, you are brilliant, because I actually wrote that down, I don't know where it is now, but I wrote down The Impossible, I'm like, okay, this is where the horror community is going to have trouble swallowing, because in The Impossible, which for people who don't know, <laughs> that that, that kind of recounts the um, tsunami that happened the day after Christmas in, like, what was it, 2005-ish? 2000,
1: 2004. Yeah, 2004, uh, that's in right. In Indonesia, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, the impossible. And, and, boy, that's incredible. And and those people, <sighs> th- boy, that's, see, yeah, that was one particular film that popped in my head that I was wrestling with. But it's like, are they victims? Um I think there is a lot of victimization portrayed in it, although like there's a fighter spirit as well. But but I think ultimately, if you're going to put it on a scale, I think it tips more toward the victimization. And so then, okay, where would it go down into horror? And by the way, nobody in the horror community would probably classify that as a horror film. So this is where and
1: I don't. And I don't know that I would either. But I know what you. I mean, it has some very well, at least chilling elements to it. I mean, and some, and some very strong scenes
0: and, and gore. Um, and you know, and, when, yeah,
1: exactly. And, and there is gore in it as well. I mean, you know, one of the things that you probably naively think of when you think of, of a tsunami or a big wave of water comes like, well, jump into it or
0: Just swim, you know, ride
1: it out or <laughs> swim or whatever. Right. But right. This shows you that these people were thrown into objects that you know that that they were they were thrown into buildings into trees into you know fence posts and and things underwater that they were colliding with these things that were floating around them there were like vehicles floating around them and and it was you know how do you how do you possibly defend against that
0: right exactly and and this also reminds me um you know when we talk about that it it doesn't necessarily have to be a monster, it just has to be a life-threatening force, mm-hmm. and, 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 and certainly a tsunami is. And so, right. so, yeah, I mean, by this, and I, am un- I just want to tell people, just for the record, I'm uncomfortable with this. Like, I, I don't love putting the impossible in there as a horror film, um, right. because it's, it's so much a drama above anything else to me so
1: yeah it's a yeah like a drama about about a family and and what what they had to go through
0: yeah on that
1: particular day
0: but if we were being like if somebody was holding a gun to my head and saying hey you gotta stick to this thing you came up with here then it's like yeah yeah it'd be primal horror
1: that's what I'm thinking cuz cuz of your definition of primal horror that would fit.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it would technically. So yeah, I'm not comfortable with it, but I would admit it's primal horror according to this, but Okay. Yeah.
1: And and also with um when it comes to um you were saying hybrid horror. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously comedy horror is, would probably be I would think and we're going to be doing an episode about that coming up down the road. Yes. But comedy horror, I think, would sort of almost be like the the, the top tier of that because they seem to be paired rather frequently.
0: Oh yeah, like the. You
1: know, um, but and you had mentioned the '80s, and yes, the '80s did have you know things like student bodies and and <laughs> uh, you know getting into other movies uh, along those lines. Um, you know, Fright Night had some comedy too, and things like that. Uh, but it does go back, obviously, even further than that. I mean, you know, of course, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein is a good example because in that movie, you had horror icons, actors who were acting as if they were in a horror movie.
0: Yes, classic while horror. Abbott
1: Costello were acting as if they were in a
0: comedy. And like a modern example would be Horns, which Bill Shetty had in his um, top 10 list last year. And and, and that in and that movie... You know, that's clearly, to me, would be like a hybrid horror in this particular mm-hmm. respect because it's got some classic horror elements in it, but it's also like a crime film, and it's also a drama, it's, and it's also a love story. It's like blind. Right,
1: exactly, and that's, and that's got the mixture there, too. And actually, another really um, good one, and I'm just going to throw it out there, like I said, we're going to be getting into this more later, is um, even goes back earlier than that, it's 1940, The Ghost Breakers which is a Bob Hope movie. And that's one I'm, I'm actually hope maybe you guys get a chance to check that out before we do our comedy horror episode. Um, oh, wow. Because that does have some very effective horror scenes in it. Yeah. Uh, but it is a Bob Hope, you know, it stars Bob Hope and it's a very unusual role for Bob Hope. Bob Hope normally played a coward in his movies. <laughs> in this one, he's the hero. He's the braver. He's rushing into rooms to, 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 to like, help people and, and, and it's just a very interesting movie, and it is a movie that has some, um, you know, scary scenes in it.
0: Hmm. You would never tell that from the cover, on no, IMDb. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> Me, not at all.
1: But it is one um, uh, that, that's worth checking out as well. It's okay, I'm
2: having a really hard time with this. <laughs> <laughs> let me just say that. Because
1: a
0: lot of and I'm people sure there's are.
2: listeners out there that are too. So let me speak for them and then just see if you can uh respond to
0: it. Okay, I'll see what I can do. I
2: I wanna I wanna be on board with this because what I want to <laughs> do is put to bed a lot of these discussions. Yes. And so I would feel so much better if at some point we could say, you know, this is this and that is that, and so we can move on with the discussion. Right. <laughs> right. But I can't abide that you're putting the impossible <laughs> even reluctantly as a horror film Yeah, and even still bone tomahawk and that you're not even considering the edge and the revenant which again i am happy with none of these being horror films <laughs> right but if you're gonna put some of them i can't i don't i'm not i know that you are able to parse the difference between them in your mind but i'm saying from the rubric that you've given us right i cannot parse the difference Myself
0: and and this is an excellent point, and I want to address that too because I, I came to terms with. I mean, I have spent uh, literally like hours, probably thinking about this, like under ten, but still hours thinking about this. And I believe that ultimately it, it's going to come down to subjectivity to some degree. I, I don't think there's any way that we can escape that element of subjectivity it's going to throw us off yeah every time because because each person is going to have to decide for him or herself like okay well is that person a a victor or a victim because for through half of the movie they're you know victor uh, victims and then they turn into victors and it's like which one are they for more time and and blah 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 and it it is going to be you know, dicey, as you're suggesting. And I agree with you. I think that is problematic, and it does make me very sad, because I wanted to, like, really solve this, and I think that it's probably impossible as long as subjectivity is going to exist, and and uh, there's no way to get rid of subjectivity.
2: But your subjectivity is the thing that's causing the problem. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> or is it your subjectivity?
2: You know no, what I mean. Trying to apply your rules across the board to a set of films that are s- similar to me in tone, violence, theme. You know, like there, and and really mortal danger, which is at the root of all of this. Or uh-huh. yeah death,
0: man versus death. Yes. Okay. Yeah.
2: So I, I don't know. I yeah. guess. Um, well. I don't. I think the the amount of evidence you can provide um, really plays a big role in cl- the classification. I think the less evidence you can provide, the easier it is to uh, write it off for me.
0: Now that that's true. So uh, let me just set that aside. Not I'm not dodging you. I promise. But let me just say this. Um, at least with what I've provided here, like these three, like for example, let's just let's just use. Bill Shetty because the old school Bill Shetty, not the new Bill Shetty. Like, do you remember back in the day when he was very, <laughs> he had a very, um, kind of narrow definition of what horror was.
2: That uh-huh. guy's not here anymore. No, he,
0: he he's, likes unfriended. Yeah. He's a different man now. And, and that's okay. Like, you know, I, I love him both ways. Yeah. But well,
2: who's the hardcore horror fan guy that is Willis Wheeler, that guy now?
0: No, like I, I mean, I, Maybe, maybe uh, one sick puppy or, uh, you know, I'm pretty stringent according to a lot of people for most part, but, but yeah, maybe one sick puppy.
2: No, you're not when it comes to survival horror though. That's your big weakness. Actually.
0: <laughs> well, I do love that. You
2: and you're having a, you've worked really hard to justify it. <laughs> well,
0: well, that's what I want to get to. So the, the point is when you have somebody who's like, Just a classic horror traditionalist, meaning that's the only thing that's horror. All this other stuff is just BS, blah, 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 right? And they're disregarding it, okay? When you have somebody like that, and they hear a review on this podcast, and if I say, they hear me say, okay, this is a hybrid horror film. Or if they hear me say, this is a primal horror film, then that person can be like, nope, I'm out. I don't want to watch that movie. And and that's really what film criticism is about to me on on a, a big level is helping people to know what films that they will like. And so, you know, just by just by knowing at least the nature of these definitions, maybe you're up for, you know, exploring a hybrid horror, but like if Jay is saying that's a primal horror film, you're like, Okay, that's BS. That's either a thriller or a drama or something else, and then they can just disregard it. I think it's useful on that level.
2: No, absolutely, I agree. You mm-hmm. just have some blemishes on your record, is the problem.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, right. a, as do we all, though, to be honest. But like, <laughs> we we all have our blind spots and our weaknesses for sure, and I recognize that too. But
1: I mean, a lot of it, a lot of it, obviously comes down to the the filmmaker's intention too.
0: Mm-hmm. But how can we you know, mind-read
1: them. Well, I think, you know, it, was the, did they intend to – was their intention to frighten us? Was their intention to, you know – See, like, I don't with, care with as much about their intention as not.
2: your – it's, it's more about your reaction to me, Dave. So um, if you're putting tremors in, are you putting it in to laugh or to be scared or both? If it's both, mm-hmm. maybe it's a hybrid. I don't know. You know what I mean, right, but I think with
1: but I think with Tremors, they, they they intended to make us both laugh and.
2: Yeah, but you least, might you yeah. might have an inept director or a film that's that's received in a different way than it's presented. For instance, um, mm-hmm. Troll Two was not intended to make you laugh, but that's the effect.
1: Right, right. Nor Plan Nine from Outer Space or right. things like that. No, that's the truth. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying.
0: So what what should we name this madness here? I I could not come up with a clever name
1: jay's madness
0: <laughs> like tone and um then the categories like i i just you know I, I wanted to come up with a clever name for that but i i failed on that As
2: i was telling you i was I, I was hoping this would be kind of on that mount rushmore the ever-growing mount rushmore maybe part two or three of the jay of the dead def, <laughs> you know uh, high-minded definitions of horror um <laughs> You know, mountain. So, I I I hope to, that that will grow over time. I look forward to future installments. I, what so? What was your? What were your lists uh, that we presented in the Jason Blum episode called? Were, the, were did that have kind of a catchy title, or was it just a, a long-winded descriptive title?
0: It was something to the effect of um, 13 Things That Every Horror Film Should Have" or something like that. Okay. Yeah. So, um. And
2: so this is uh, tone and. So what is, what would you call this? They're not they're not genres.
0: They're category. I mean tone and um horror
2: or category, yeah, horror definition and categorization. Is yeah, that
0: something like to that? that. If if any of the listeners can come up with something clever, and I didn't mean by clever smart alecky, right? Like <laughs> I mean like if you come up with something clever, I will adopt it and use it. But I but I honestly I think that this is somewhat useful. I agree with everybody listening to this. that it has, this has its problems, but I do think it's a fairly decent, I I think it's, I think it's a respectable approach to trying to tackle this problem. It's a
2: great, it's a great tool going forward. I think at least, I mean, if we can, you know, take it from the grandest possible scale to the smallest, at least going forward on our show, we can very quickly identify, where a film sits in our minds by using this scale yeah and so that's useful
0: yeah Uh i mean i
2: think what i hoped is that this would clear up some of (laughs) the audiences and mine and dave's i don't know who whoever feels like me some of our misgivings about some of the other films that you have chose to call horror or not in the past i think uh, think uh, uh, a lot of my hopes were writing on that and i think now that i can kind of release and let go of that hope (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, because I'm thinking now instead of getting, you know, debates on that's not horror, we'll get, that's not primal horror.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and really, that seems like something that we should not do. But um, if you'll remember, like the, the very first thing I said to open this up is that we horror fans, the horror community, we often fight because we can't trust one another's classification enough to communicate in a universal way what the movie is like, yeah,
1: but, but and it's I think this some, does that. Uh, it even does extend sometimes to um, I'm not distributors. I, I guess it would be like the the home video market because as much as I like the movies that, that Magnet releasing was putting out, um, you know, over the years they they really have put out some some really entertaining films. Uh, they were classifying things as horror strictly to. Pull in that that crowd, like they had Machete classified as horror, and that was to me not a horror film. Um,
2: Should we break before. it down by Jay's rubric? Okay. okay, where would would you put Machete
1: <laughs> anywhere in horror? You've seen Machete, right, Jay?
0: Um, yeah, it's been a long time. That's got that's got Danny Trejo in it, right? Danny
2: Trejo. Dan, in he's it, definitely yeah. a Victor. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, right, right. So because he's because he's a Victor. <sighs> I don't, really,
2: really, that comes back to that revenge thing. Like any movie where your lead character is hell-bent on revenge struggles with your classification system.
1: Right. But, but I th- And I think the reason Magnet did it was strictly to pull in that crowd. Yeah. You know, to, to pull in that horror crowd because they knew it was going to be – they know that, that when it comes to horror, a lot of people, when they go on Netflix or when they're looking up these films, they click on horror. Give me everything that's, that's classified as horror. And if they classify it as horror, it's going to fall. And I I'm I think even Hobo with a shotgun might've been the same thing.
2: I think that's a borderline film though. That's interesting, you know? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and let's talk about, for example, the last house on the left, the, the, the original and the remake really for that matter. Uh-huh. Um. Let's talk about that. So you've got, cause Josh brings up the point of revenge horror films and, and, for much of that, I mean, like, honestly, it, it feels like, at least for most of those films, they're victims, okay? And then, and then you get, you do get, you know, somewhat of a reversal, you get some revenge going on there, but I think there's just a, a lot of victimization there. But, but Josh, what's an yeah, example it's, of that? But
1: it's some extreme victimization, I right? Think it
0: is brutal, yeah. So, that's clearly. Clearly, a horror film, and I would even call it. it's that- a
2: hybrid horror, and you could you could argue the parts that are it's a hybrid between a horror film and a revenge film. You know what I mean? Um, you could say the same thing about "I Spit on Your Grave." Yeah, that's the other. Um, one the, I was these are about, part exactly. horror, part revenge, and the revenge film seems to be under your scale contradictory to horror in some regard, and I, that's I'm fine with that. I like that idea because there's a switch. And it becomes this hybrid film where it's kind of, you think you're getting one thing. You think you're getting a victimization and actually you're getting this revenge plot. Mm, It's interesting.
0: Yeah. Cool. So anyway, I'm sure the listeners will let us know what they think of this. And I'm sure that we'll, you know, touch on this more in the future. I'm anxious to hear what uh, Dr. Walking dead, Kyle Bishop has to say about it and um, it'll be fun, but thanks for entertaining this, at least guys and listening to it. Everybody that's still here. I
2: still have so much more to say about this. Are you done?
0: Yeah, go for it. I don't want to cut you off. I just don't want to spend too awful long. I know we got some reviews to get to, but go ahead. Go for it. Go for it.
2: No, but I just think a lot of horror classification, like you said, is so subjective. And what it does is, for me, a lot of it is just does it pass the sniff test, which is really, it's just kind of like it kind of goes back to tone as well like you know we get we got in these discussions um as we we're preparing for the upcoming uh horror comedy episode um listeners are talking to me about the burbs about ghostbusters about young frankenstein and those are films that i think of as comedy first horror later or or or, or have small elemental horror elements like a bone tomahawk and to, in terms uh-huh. of those, could be possibly considered hybrid horror films, but they are, you know, in my, in my opinion, like the sniff test is I'm mostly going there to laugh. Right. Yeah. I'm mostly going there,
1: hey, especially laugh. in young Frankenstein. I mean, if you look, it was made by Mel Brooks, who has made, is a made comedies. That's basically right. the genre he works in.
2: So what I like about this, scale that you've presented us with, Jay, is it kind of replaces the sniff test to some degree. Like that's where it sits. In my, There's the broader classifi- classification of horror. And then there's this that's saying, okay, well, let's parse that out into smaller subcategories. And then there's the more even in-depth version that we typically like to do where we say this is first comedy, yes. second drama, third horror. So this kind of sits between the sub-genre breakdown and the broader horror um, t- big tent of horror. Yeah,
0: and but and by the way, I call that when we do when we say like this is Western first, horror second. When we do that, I I refer to that at least as genre classification. I mean, yeah. I like to classify w- the genres, or maybe we should call it genre identification. But um, or, yeah, like I think of it as a breakdown, I guess. But like, but and- but maybe maybe what's missing here, and maybe what we're getting tripped up on is maybe there should be, and I I really wrestled with this. So you guys, tell me what you think. I was thinking, okay, because primal horror almost covers this, I think. I, I think primal horror, horror covers this sufficiently, but you could say there's something called fringe horror. If you look up the word fringe, and we've used fringe horror over the, the last couple of years on this podcast, but but if you look up the word fringe, it says a narrow area along the edge of something and it's narrow area right so it's like Mm -hmm. things like Bone Tomahawk where it's like it's like 95 yeah 95% this and then it has horror elements then I guess you could possibly say okay well that's going to be fringe horror which means that like if your spouse like mine is sensitive they're going to be fine with like 95% of that film but when you get to the horror scene they're going to flip out like mine would, <laughs> then yeah. I mean, then that's a uh, fringe horror. I don't know. I don't even know if we should like parse it out that far. But um, yeah. I like that. I like that. Um, you, you like fringe horror for something that's barely got you know some horror elements.
2: Here's my big concern, and you tell me if fringe fits this category. What I'm hoping to accomplish with this rubric <laughs> is that if it fits any of these categories. We're never again going to say on the podcast, that's not a horror movie. Yeah, I mean, we couldn't. I am hoping that if if someone can say, this is a fringe film, and and a fringe is where it's most dicey, and primal probably, secondly. But I would like to be able to say, if we can define it as one of these three categories, or possibly four, then we can broadly say, this is a horror movie. And then if we want to get more specific, we can. Is that, is that safe?
0: I, I do like that, and the reason I like it is because of this. Like, with, for example, with primal horror, the reason I think that should exist is because when when I saw no no escape as a subjective viewer, I I was genuinely scared. My heart rate was up. I mean, I was I, I had a physical reaction the entire movie. I felt like I was exhausted, and there has to be something that the that accounts for a film that can scare me. And it's like, if this film scared me the whole time, how can I not call that horror? So yeah, like I think we should have this thing, maybe this code of honor, maybe this is too touchy feely to the tough horror crowd. But it's like, if, if I call it primal horror, which means it scared me, like Open Water scares me or Buried scares me, then people should just, you know, step off and be like, well, it's primal horror to Jay. I guess it scared him, Pansy. You know, like, I, I don't I know. This
2: is horror movie podcast, right? But right, I think right. um, this isn't a classic horror movie podcast. Is that, that safe to say? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So we are true.
2: operating under the big tent of horror.
0: That's right. And horror has big tents.
2: Yeah, I mean, just I'm saying, kidding. like, bring us your... Bring us your fringe. Bring us your primal. <laughs> bring us your comedy horrors. We'll we'll discuss them here, right? That's right.
0: that's interesting. It is. So, so do you want to do fringe horror as something that's like ninety five percent like something you don't you don't know about that? But okay, one last thing on primal horror because I feel like that's my weakest like establishment. I found my notes where I was writing about the impossible. I wrote that Primal Horror, like one test for Primal Horror, is does it trigger within you, the viewer, it's either the characters and or the viewer, does it trigger the fight or flight feeling within you? Mm. And I think that's good. I mean, of course, other horror categories do that as well, but I'm just saying I think that's part of it. But
2: For me, the biggest problem I have with my horror classifications are in the thriller area. I think that's where I struggle to, to define things
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, and so I like the victor versus a victim thing even if it's our if it's your subjective decision that that's what it's going to be and then we all agree to it I still like it because it's it's an easy it's an easy thing to uh, describe it's an easy thing to spot in a film mm-hmm. so I don't know I like that I think about films like uh, the eyes of what's it called the eyes of Laura Mars Laura Mars
3: oh yeah, yeah. mm-hmm
2: that's like a film that I think, oh, it seems like more of a thriller. But I like to be able to kind of feel like, well, is she a victim? Okay, now, now I can define that film easily, quickly, too.
0: Yeah, yeah, I like that. Nice. Okay, well, I mean, we'll, we'll work with it, and we'll probably end up tweaking it a little, and, and that's fine. And I'm sure the listeners will have brilliant things to say and make fun of me, and that's fine, too. So. And, if
2: I, and if I scared anyone off by saying this isn't a classic horror movie podcast, that still is mostly what we focus on. Typically. Right. I mean, when we, when we don't, we're always identifying, like we're doing a special comedy horror episode because we so rarely cover it. You know?
0: Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I just want to thank everybody for taking the time to listen to all that smut that I just said. I think it's
2: very useful. I like it. Like (laughs) like I've mentioned it before, but I think, you know, defining horror with Jay of the dead. Like I like, (laughs) I like these moments of the podcast because I think it, uh, I don't know. I, I I appreciate all the work that goes into what you do. I like that you think about it this much. And even if all we do is anger people by the end of it, I think it's exciting that we care enough to get this geeky over this stuff.
0: Yeah, and wrestle with it. Yeah, I like getting down in the mud and wrestling with it. But yeah, thank you for your nice words. I appreciate it. Okay, guys. Let's move into some horror movie reviews, which is why we're all here, and I'm really excited to hear from Doctor Shock because I understand that you caught up with the Final Girls, right, Doc?
1: Yes, I did. Um, very late to the uh, late to the party on this one. I, I think most. Uh, I know Josh has seen it, and I think most of the commenters um, on uh, on the blog have seen it. Most of the regulars, if not all of them um so i'm I'm, yeah i'm a little bit late to the game here but uh yeah i gotta tell you i i I watched it and i ended up watching it again like almost immediately oh that made made me so happy uh which which i don't normally do i don't normally get a chance to do that but this time i had a chance to do it and i just sort of sat and watched it again uh i did enjoy it uh quite a bit um the, the things i liked about it obviously yes it is Horror comedy, uh, so it would be a hybrid. Um, if, if we're going to be, you know, now delving into that uh, that realm,
3: I'm flattered. Um,
1: but I liked how it did combine the two. I thought it was very uh, clever uh, w- with with a lot of of what it did. I mean, there's this one scene yeah. where the characters sort of uh, freak out and they're running, and you just see like there's just these lines are repeated all the time. Like these two characters just keep repeating these lines and because it's part of a movie. And I I laughed at that. The, the, the character, like the, the killer in this is very much like the, the Jason Voorhees, um, obviously Michael Myers. And uh, they, they kept it very true to, to that. And there's a, uh, a scene late in the movie where um, there's a uh, there's a weapon and whoever, you know, you, you, it's like which character is going to get there first. Well, one character runs, whereas the killer walks because that's all he ever does in the movie nice. is walk. That's all that, that Jason ever did. That's all the that Michael Myers ever did. They never ran. They just walked. And I liked that. I liked how they sort of stayed <laughs> with that whole thing. Yeah. Um, but probably for me, the the strongest element of this film was um, the relationship between the mother and daughter, and how it almost got to to be continued um, by what happens. Um, you know, I don't I, I don't know about you know, Like I said, a lot of the people have seen this movie already, but still, there's well, I'm sure plenty who haven't. So yeah. I'm not going to get too deep into it. But there's this there's this relationship between a mother and daughter, and it opens up the movie, okay? And then it gets to, uh, you know, something happens, um, and then to the mother, the mother, you know, the, the, something happens to the mother, but yet the daughter gets to reconnect with the mother entering the movie. Now, it's through this character. It's not really the mother. It's, the, it's this character, because what happened was her mother was a, a movie star, and she appeared in um, uh, an eighty slasher film. You know, and it's sort of ruined her career in a way, because like, that's all people remember her for now. Um, but she gets to, she's watching the movie, they get pulled into the movie. You know, it's almost, was it like a last action hero type of thing there. <laughs> and they get pulled into this movie, and she sees, there's, a, there's this really great scene where she sees the character. It is the character in the movie, and it's not her mother, but it's played by her mother. It's like a younger version of her mother, and the actress, uh, it's, I think it's Vera Farmiga's younger sister.
0: Mm-hmm, correct.
1: Yeah, and she just does such a great job in that scene, um, you know, the, the from that realization. I mean, just a very uh, emotional scene. And it did add, it, it's interesting because the movie itself, like the movie within a movie, Camp uh, Bloodbath. Camp, Blood, camp Bloodbath, thank you. I was going to say bloodshed for some reason, Camp Bloodbath. hmm you know, a lot of the a lot of the uh, critics of the uh, slashers of the '80s got on them for how you know misogynistic they are. Um, you, you know, with with okay, they go after the they go after women, and and, and just you know a woman uh, they're very women are either like the virgin or the whore. You know that whole thing. Um, well, in, in the in the movie within a movie, it's even more misogynistic than. I think the real Slashers were from the 80s. I think it takes it even further than that. You've got this one character who all he talks about is sleeping with women. He's looking at Playboys all the time. You know, it's a, It was meant to be humorous, this character, obviously. But even with, with the killer, it's not just having sex. He shows up if a girl takes her top off. You know, here comes the killer if, the, if a girl takes her top off. So the movie itself was very misogynistic, but yet at the heart of this movie – is a very strong bond between these two women. Yeah, that I think really adds to it. I mean, it it brings like, it, it takes it sort of yes, it's sort of it's more mocking the misogyny of, of the of the of the eighties. I still think it pays tribute to it too because I you could tell I think the, the people who put this together I think had a fondness for that for for slashers. Yeah, I think so anyway. But yet at at it, it takes it takes what had. Uh, like a very misogynistic movie, and it puts a very strong female relationship, a mother-daughter relationship, at the center of it,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it becomes a real strength of
2: strong uh, female characters. Yeah. Absolutely,
1: yeah, absolutely. So I think it, as much as I liked, I did like the comedy, and I did think that there were some good horror scenes in it. Um, it was it was that relationship because both actresses handled it very well. And you have one actress playing two characters, you know, the one who played the mother in the opening scene and then plays a character in the movie uh, later on, but yet they still form that bond.
2: Um,
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Both of them did uh, a great job, but especially, um, uh, you know, I want to call Vera uh, Farmiga's sister. Um, I (laughs) I can't remember what her first name is now. uh, Aissa or something like that. I think it is.
0: Farmiga the uh, Younger. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, it's, um, Younger, right. I have it here. Um, it's uh, Thaisa or Tha- Thaisa, Thaisa something.
1: Thaisa, okay. Um, she, was, she was especially strong, I think. And you know the scene I'm talking about, Josh, when they're in the van? Yeah. And they say, oh, wake up, you know, Sleeping Beauty in the back. Yeah. And just the way, you know, the, the, the look on her, the, the way she handled that scene was perfect. Yeah, I it, think yeah, and the filmmaking is so
2: strong there too. I mean, there are mm-hmm. couple, there are a couple moments where I really have to hand it to the director. Ultimately, um, and I I talked about this I think on the last show how I had heard so much from the writers and kind of prefer their vision for what the film could have been, mm-hmm. um, but kind of accepting this film for what it is. There are a few moments where he really brings it. I don't love all of his choices, but um, he he does some great work here. Even though my sensibilities aren't exactly what his are, or what I would right. hope hope it would be based on the the screenplay, but mm-hmm. they wanted it, it, something a little more hardcore, and they delivered an R rated version the first time.
1: Oh, okay,
2: pretty hard R. Yeah,
1: all right. But as it stands right now, I'd I'd probably I would give it an eight point five.
2: Oh such wow, it's such a good movie,
1: and I would say it's worth uh, it's worth picking up because I like I, I watched it twice in a row and i can definitely see myself watching it again.
2: Yeah, i've seen it 3 times now. I mentioned this last time i watched it two, i watched both commentaries. I watched the director commentary and then started it over and watched the writer commentary right after that. <laughs> That's next. I
1: have to watch it with the The commenters. writer commentary is the better yet. of the two. Those guys were Okay.
0: Awesome. Okay. Wow. Well, um, it's definitely on my list, you guys. I it's high on my list. I can't wait to see it and i've heard just so many people Love it. And it's been on uh, like a lot of top 10 lists for 2015 and I'm just missing out. But thanks, Dr. Shock. I love it. Um, What do you want to talk about, Josh? What do you got?
2: Um, I'm trying to think of the film. You know, I'm just catching up on the films of 2015 that we missed and probably will be for another or two Frankenstein episodes. But um, one that I want to talk about, I think
0: you have seen Jay's girl house. Oh yeah. Mm hmm.
2: Yeah, can we talk about that a little bit more?
0: Yeah, yeah. Props to Dino. What did you rev-
2: review Girlhouse on?
0: Well, I I saw it in preparation for our end of the year top ten list show.
2: So you haven't properly reviewed it.
0: No, not properly because um, but it was one of the things that Dino said you must see this, and so yeah. I saw it, and yeah. So kick it off, Josh. What do you think?
2: So Girlhouse is a really interesting movie. Um, you know, being kind of interested in. Survivor reality TV. I, I can't help but compare this to Big Brother, which was kind of the granddaddy of a lot of what reality television became. Um, the Dutch television show, uh, Big Brother, which was eventually, you know, exported to the United States and has become a big show here as well. But basically, this idea that you can see what's going on in all these rooms in the house, and this house, though, happens to be, um, a house for young women to do pornographic shows. Um, Some of them are kind of like a cam show kind of a thing, but there's others that are full on like sex pornography uh, situations.
0: Well, just, just to be clear though. Yeah. I, I don't feel, I mean, maybe I'm just like desensitized and everything, but I mean, when when you say that, it paints a picture, and you're like, "Oh, okay. So what's this? You know, like, I mean, what is it? is this? Is it just rated? Is it rated R or what? What's it rated? Well, I'm not sure, actually. Okay. I mean, I
2: will say it's mo- it's pretty chaste for what the premise is.
0: Yeah. I I mean, it didn't go, um, nearly as far as the the premise suggests.
2: Yeah. Which is. You know, I I'm not. I think this is maybe what Dino's thought. I probably wouldn't be into this movie because that's not a world I'm that interested in. But um, but then I'm on the you know on the other hand, I started thinking it's kind of a failure of the film to not go a little bit further because it's not true to the characters that were uh, you know that we're seeing. Does that make sense? So on one hand, I'm not into pornography, so it, I you know it's not my thing. But on the other hand. It's odd that your main character is—I um, guess she's not a sex worker. What would you call that? I mean, she's she's essentially just a nude model, but um, but it's weird but, that she but, is, just never appears nude in the film. That's kind of an odd no. tension. Yeah.
0: I, I agree with you hundred percent. Yeah. And I think it takes from that,
2: away from the realism of what you're watching.
0: Yeah. And, I, and, and by the way, just PS for the record, like I'm, I'm fine with that. I was glad because I'm not into that at all. Like that's not my thing.
2: So anyway, I'm sorry to uh, get derailed there. But basically what you have is it's a house where a bunch of women live and they're on constant video surveillance. And so it's very much like Big Brother or there's a documentary called We Live in Public, um, which is a really good documentary um, about a guy who has cameras on him 24-7 in his house. And people can just log on the internet and watch whatever he's doing at the time. That's basically what this is. People can log in to the house And they can, there's, you know, eight girls living in the house and they can go from room to room, watch whoever they want. Some girls have a private show that they'll do. Others are just, you know, doing yoga or working on the exercise bikes or watching TV or eating food. So, in some ways, it's kind of like half reality show, half porn site um, that these girls are living at. And our main character, they attempt to, which I think is, again, awkward, they attempt to have this kind of virginal horror movie heroine at the center of their film. But it's just – it's an odd fit with her profession, (laughs) I think.
0: Yeah, it really is.
2: Yeah, but basically you have – your main character comes into this situation. She's the newcomer, and she is kind of learning the ropes as we are, and she's our eye into this world to kind of help us understand, okay, well, here's what's going on here. And guess what? This is the most secure house in the world. No one knows its location. It's uh, protected by big, burly security guards. But further, um, the internet site is protected by this incredible group of technicians and firewalls so that no one can ever find out where this house is or put the women in harm <laughs> in any way. And of course, immediately, um, that doesn't turn out to be the case. So you have kind of a classic slasher eventually that kind of emerges from this digital um, world that um, seems like something that might be in a film like Unfriended. I don't know, you'd have to tell me or um, reminded me of that film Open Windows a little bit.
0: Um, Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of Open Windows and this is like 12 times better than Unfriended. Way better,
2: but I just mean, in terms of the interplay between screen and, and character, well,
0: this showed you various things, whereas like it it felt like at least eighty five percent of unfriended just shows you the Skype chat screen right or the Skype screen, oh my right. goodness, yeah,
2: yeah, so anyway, i that was a little muddled, but hopefully that got across the premise, and it's it's pretty fun, and I would say. The look of the killer um, in their mask is terrifying and awesome. Mm-hmm. Super scary. Great idea, great concept behind it. I did wish that we hadn't seen that character's regular face so much. Cause I think that takes away from the scariness of the mask, knowing who's underneath it, it kind of removes the mystery and, and having that mystery removed for me took away from the terror because I was like, Oh, well, it's just that guy. We've, we've seen that guy quite a bit <laughs> and I'm not that scared of that guy, even though he's clearly crazy. You know, there's part of you that's I could take that guy. But the creep and the mask, you're never sure if you can take them because you don't know who they are. You don't know what's going on behind there. And I thought it was really effective when the mask was on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think the the all of the time we spend with that character is was a bit of a a detractor for me.
0: Yeah, and you you're referring to the time that we spend in him with without the mask, right? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. I I can definitely see your point in that but but Josh, did you feel like that this movie Girl House had um the heart of the eighties slasher film didn't didn't it just seem like an updated modern slasher from like the the good old days I
2: think once it got to the house for sure once the killer gets to the house, yeah, I think it felt like it did not feel like that to me for the first Half of the film, though.
0: Yeah, I mean, aside from all the internet stuff, of course, because, yeah, you didn't have that in 80s slashers. (laughs) But, um, yeah, I mean, there was something about the heart and soul of this that I just felt like was finally carried over. I mean, I don't know what it is. I don't know if Dr. Shock feels the same way about this, but it just seems like we don't get the same kind of slasher flicks that we used to. The updated versions are some kind of weird new like spin off of the slasher, and and I felt like this was a little more faithful to what I know and love. It was a great slasher.
2: Well, it, it, like I, you know, we um talked a lot about the town, the dreaded sundown, and a lot of these movies that we talked about this last year, like all these kind of homage films. There's always this level of remove because some kind of some sort of homage is being play is being paid, and there's always kind of this artifice on whatever it is. And I didn't feel that at all with this movie. It felt very um, intense and kind of in the moment. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and I think just because of maybe you know, like, sort of what I was saying with the final girls is with this day and age, you know, it's kind of hard to go back and make an 80 slasher film straight up. I think you yeah. can do it, but I think you might, you know, you, you face some criticism too. Um, you know, just because of a lot of the criticism that was that was tossed at those movies back in the eighties, and nowadays I think people are a little more gun shy to uh, to do some of the things that they used to do back then.
2: What I didn't like about it is how long it was drawn out before the the, the killing started, you know, and then how quickly that all transpired. I felt like the film would have been better served to to make the killer showing up at the house happen earlier and then really stretching out the tension. I feel like he just mows through everyone so quickly. Um, there, you know, there's a certain excitement to that, I guess that it's very intense. Um, but it doesn't, um, it lacks a lot of tension because of like, uh, because of that.
0: I know exactly what you mean. I, I do have a theory on why it was approached that way, though, and I think that um, this was about, it, it seems like, and I am—I do not know Trevor Matthews or Nick Gordon, the director and writer to this film, I, I don't know what they were thinking, but it just seems like, um, and I don't say that in a bad way when I say I don't know what they were thinking, I mean, I don't know what their thoughts were, but I know that like a lot of people have this recipe for what they think would Please a modern horror audience, and there's the, the kind of the you know the TNA side of it, and then there's the horror and the kills. And I bet, I, I suspect they're like, well, if we if we front load the first half with some attractive gals, and then you know the last third or whatever with some good kills, then people are gonna love this, and we'll have a hit. And I I bet you that was the approach, Josh. I bet it was about kind of exploiting the girl house aspect of it.
2: I still think you could have done that a little bit better and it would have been a better horror movie. I yeah.
0: agree. I mean, I would have liked to have seen more of the killer, which by the way was played by um a rapper, Slain. Okay. Do you know Slain's music?
2: Not not a big rap guy.
0: Yeah, well, I'm a rapper as everybody knows. Just kidding. Yeah. But but um <laughs> I don't really know Slain, but I will say, okay, so this the director Real quick, uh, Trevor Matthews, yeah. he was in he was in the film The Shrine from 2010, which mm. I love, yeah. of course. And, and so not only did he star in that, but he was also one of the writers for that. I mean, I think this guy's got a lot of talent, and I definitely think this is worth people's time. I think they should check it out. I think I was in like the, the 7.5 out of 10 range and tell people it's a strong rental for me. And if you're a slasher fan then it's going to be a buy for you. I think it's a buy for slasher fans like if you're like, you know, like a Greg Amortis type, then you know, he's going to own it, for example. What do Especially you
2: Especially if you like modern slashers. Uh, um, mm-hmm. because I think this let me, let me put this this way. If you're an 80s horror fan, 80s slasher fan that can abide modern slashers, you're going to love this movie.
0: <laughs> now, when you say modern slashers, are you are you making the distinction that this has internet stuff in it or are you saying that it has modern slasher conventions in particular
2: I, I think it's more of a tonal thing i think the vibe of modern slashers i'm not nearly as into as kind of the older stuff so, to, i love the i love eighty slashers i i, I do really, too i really do not like the stuff from the early aughts um
0: well describe yeah. that tone will you good help me like latch on to what you're saying? Like, what are you you referring to? I think
2: the intention is to be more gritty and hardcore, but I think what they sacrifice is, and not that the 80s was great with this stuff, but character intention. Mm -hmm. And I think character intention are really important for a film like this because um, if you don't care about the characters, then you don't care if they die. Um, I think this film does the character building pretty well. I, I give it a lot of credit for that. I'm just saying I think there's a lot of – there are a lot of slasher – most of the slasher movies for me that came out between, say, 2005 and 2010, that's, that's one of my least favorite um, stretches for slasher films. So I'm saying if you're a slasher fan from the 80s, of, of 80s films, but you still like the modern stuff, you can't really get better than this, I think. But if you're an '80s hardcore '80s fan and you don't like the modern stuff, I think this is more borderline.
0: Hmm. Okay. For me,
2: like for me, to me, I give this a six.
0: Oh, really? If
2: you were a hardcore guy that you liked both, then this would probably be more up in the eight range.
0: That's funny because yeah, to me, I'm thinking that this seems pretty universal. And in fact, like unless you're a horror fan who just doesn't like slashers, which I can't even imagine being a horror fan and not liking slashes, but I'm just saying, I'm not trying to alienate people. I'm just saying that I, this seems universally uh, lovable to me. But anyway, I, I'm excited to hear what Dr. Shock thinks about I'm it. I'm
2: surprised that you weren't offended by the girl house stuff, um, because I thought it was, even though it was tamer than I imagined it would be, It was there were some parts that were still uh, more
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, I, I don't love that aspect of it, which I think for me personally, just on a subjective, a very subjective level, that's why it wouldn't be a buy for me. I I, I wouldn't really see myself owning something like that, but yeah, yeah that's not my cup of tea just because of the way I am I'm a little conservative, but, but yeah, I mean, otherwise, you know, I think it's a great slasher flick. Okay. So there, that's girl house. And uh, Dave, did you have something you want to talk about next?
1: Um, no, I, well, you know what? I guess I could bring this up real quick. It's not something that, um, it's not a recent film. Uh, it's one that I checked out uh, from back, I want to say it's 96 it came out. Uh, one, of the, one of the things I'm doing in January is I'm going back and I'm looking at movies that were released as part of the Warner Archives collection. Um, you know, for those who aren't familiar, Warner Archives, and they're doing it both digitally, you know, online and uh, through, uh, on, I guess, DVDR. Uh, where they're releasing these films that have never been released or or had been released and had gone out of print sometimes, too. Uh, And they're releasing them as part of the Warner Archives collection. And it's really interesting because you're getting a lot of films that that obviously you would not have otherwise seen that have just drifted into obscurity. Uh, And they're putting them out. Some of them deserved to drift into obscurity. Uh, Actually... uh, Reacquainted myself with one that I never saw completely as a kid, but I'd seen bits and pieces on cable called Under the Rainbow. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that one.
3: Mm. Uh,
1: it's a 1981 mm. comedy starring Chevy Chase and Carrie Fisher about when they gathered the 150 little people in 1938 to make The Wizard of Oz. And it shows the how they sort of tore up this hotel by partying and so forth, which. I think had become sort of a a legend around Hollywood and and it wasn't true. Uh, But that's what the movie is. It takes place back in the 30s and a lot of um, it was rated PG, but a lot of um, what I would say, you know, would definitely humor that crossed the line, especially with with Asians and so forth. Um, And it just wasn't very good. You know, it was like it was like a slapstick movie with sexual overtones so it was geared toward kids, but kids couldn't watch it.
0: So one you're saying this is things. this is primal horror, then, is what you're saying? Well, yeah, there <laughs> you go. Let's kidding.
1: put that in primal horror or, or fringe. Um, <laughs> okay. But anyway, one of the films that I got to check out that I had actually never seen before, Josh, and I'm I don't I'm I don't know if you're familiar with it or not. It's called Bad Moon. Oh hmm. yeah,
2: I love that movie. I haven't seen that since the '80s, though.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, I know it's it's it is it's. It's a good I, – I actually really did enjoy it. Um, I didn't think it was perfect. I didn't like – I didn't think that the relationship – that has Michael Perret and Mario Hemingway play brother and sister. Yeah. Um, and what it is is Michael Perret, it opens up. He's, he's um, overseas. I'm not sure. I, I want to say it's Tibet or something like that, and he's attacked by a wolf. And, him and his girlfriend is killed, and he's bitten, so now he is now going to become a werewolf. He was a werewolf that bit him, and he's a werewolf now going forward. Um and what's really interesting about this movie is that a lot of it is told from the perspective of the family pet. You know, Mariel Hemingway is a single mother living with her son, uh, actually played by Mason Gamble, and they have this dog, um what is the name of the dog Thor? Okay. <laughs> uh well Michael Parade comes, you know, he, he what it is is he has been living with this with this curse now.
2: Yeah, and this is thinks, not the movie I thought. You're talking okay.
1: about. Okay, <laughs> he, he was—he's living with this curse, and he goes and he wants to um, move in with uh, the sister. He moves his mobile home into the backyard at his sister's place because he um, thinks that maybe the strong family bond will help cure him. He knows nothing about you know you know being a werewolf, and he doesn't know, um, you know anything about, I guess, the the, the physiology of it or anything. And he's hoping that maybe this will help him control. Um, you, you know, the uh, the beast that is unleashed. Uh, and what's in, there's some interesting scenes. One of them is he's sitting there with with uh, his nephew and his nephew is watching that old 1930s movie uh, Werewolf of London. Mm. Certainly not a strong werewolf movie, um, a very early one, but not a strong one. Uh, and, um, you know, Michael Perry's character lasts because it's a full moon that he changes. And, and basically this, this is just laying out that, that some of these, some of the myths, I guess, of where was, he's like, you pretty much, you don't need a full moon to change. Um, you know, it, it, happens a lot more often than that. And I also like what he does, um, is, uh, to, to, to help control this thing. He goes out for a jog every night, um, And he brings with him some handcuffs. He actually goes out into the woods and handcuffs himself to a tree so that when he changes, um, he's not going to go kill anybody. He's going to be handcuffed to this tree and he's stuck there. Well, there's a really good scene where the dog knows. The dog can tell. He can sense what, what he is. And he sort of parks himself outside just watching the mobile home. Well, Michael Perret sees this and it sort of it sort of gets under his skin a little bit. So he goes back inside. But now he knows he's got to get into the woods soon or else he's going to change and he could become a threat to his family. So it's just this whole thing with like the dog's not leaving. He's looking out the window and it becomes almost like a battle of wills between a man and a family pet and, Mm -hmm. and as who's going to win out. Those and those parts of it I really enjoyed. I didn't think that Meryl Hemingway and Michael Pere were convincing his brother and sister. I didn't really buy their relationship that well. I didn't think it handled the human characters as well as it handled. The, you know, the the first off the werewolf itself looks really good, and it was done, I believe, practically, and it looks damn good. But there's a transformation scene at the end. This movie was in '96. There's a transformation scene at the end that was done early computer. That's not good at all. I mean, it just – it doesn't look good. It, it detracts from some of what went before it. And other than that though, it's worth seeing. I would probably give it a, a 6.5 and I'd say it's, it's, it's worth a rental um, because it is uh, an interesting take on, on, uh, on uh, the whole werewolf uh, uh, subgenre or whatever you want to call it. You know, it, It's an mm-hmm. interesting werewolf film. It really is.
0: Okay.
2: The movie I thought you were talking about is called Full Moon High, which is a Larry Cohen film.
1: Oh, actually. okay. And I haven't seen that, but now I think I
2: want to. I haven't, seen ba- I haven't seen Bad Moon either. But um, it's Adam Arkin is the werewolf in that movie. Okay. And, um, yeah, that, that was the one I was thinking of. Which That one is actually uh, free on Amazon Prime, but I have not seen Bad Moon, but I, I'll look forward to checking that out. And I
1: think, I think Bad Moon, like I said, is part of the um, archive collection, and they do yeah. usually make those available digitally as well cool and it's a quick it's only 80 minutes long it's actually a very quick watch it it doesn't take a lot of your time but i think it's i think it's definitely worth checking out cool
0: nice thanks dr shock it's not very often that we you know bust out a horror flick from the 90s on this podcast so i (laughs) know no and
1: not not too often not too often so you don't always come across one other than the 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 accepted classics at this point that uh, that are worth discussing.
0: Okay, I got I got a couple to talk to you guys about, and um, this one I'm going to go kind of fast on, and you'll see why in a second. But did you guys see the uh, cover art, the poster art to a movie called Treehouse from 2014?
1: You know something, mm-hmm. Jay? I I picked this up in Walmart, strictly because of the cover. This was one of the ones that sort of took me back to the 80s, where I saw that cover. I didn't know anything about it. It's a British film, I believe.
0: Yeah, yeah, it looks like it's British.
1: Now, I don't know anything about it. I haven't even watched it yet. But based on that cover, I saw that sitting there. And you know, it's 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 yeah. pretty chilling. I mean, it's got this. It's got a picture of a treehouse, but you got so, you got these people hanging from trees.
0: Yeah, like, yeah. Like you, it's the, there's this treehouse, and there's like it looks like a sunset or a sunrise in the background, and then you get the silhouettes of several bodies, at least three, who have been hanged, and they're way up high in the air. Yeah, just hanging from the tree, and I have to say. I just got to say, all in the tagline, which is on the cover beneath the title, Treehouse, it says, No Kids Allowed. And I have to say, give credit where credit's due, that that's probably, I would put this in a top 50 all-time horror movie covers because that's exactly what happened to me. This sucker, this was at Redbox last summer, and I think it was when... I'm just trying to look up another movie so I can give you an idea. Actually, it was April, I believe, because I went to see a different film and I picked this up at Redbox. I remember that part. But man, the only reason I haven't reviewed it yet from last April is because it is so poor and just forgettable. Really? Yeah, it's awful. It's It's one of those right. examples, it's classic example of you know, they sold you on the cover, you know, kind of thing. And that's what happened to me. I think a lot of people feel that way. You expect so much from it and then it's just a mess. So I'm going to try to talk about it a little bit, at least give somebody an idea. It's been a long time since I've seen it. And so I was trying to kind of review and jog my memory just a tiny bit. But anyway, so with Treehouse, the IMDB thing is a teenage boy discovers the perpetrators of several brutal kidnappings in his hometown. That's what that says. Um, Wikipedia says. 2014 American horror film directed by Michael Bartlett. And it's got teens who attempt to escape a tree house. Back to the safety of their own town. After going out after curfew. So yeah you got these kids. Um, who wind up. Like there are lots of kids going missing. And then you get these kids who go out into the woods. And they get up in this tree house. And some mysterious things start happening. And um, I wish I could tell you guys more about it. But like, I honestly, I'm, it,
1: uh, it's, it's, I'm, I'm looking at it on IMDb here. You know how they just sort of put up random user reviews. Right. The one that I'm looking at here has one star out of 10 and yeah. starts off. Here's a riddle for you. What is worse than a rubbish film? How about a film that is confusing rubbish?
0: <laughs> yeah, one of those one of those user reviews. They called it worst movie ever. Um The LA Times called it a lackluster backwoods thriller. It lacks the tension of Jeopardy, meaning the TV show, <laughs> which is <laughs> funny to me. Um bloody disgusting said it's a 3.5. Um they called it a brooding atmospheric thriller that works on a lot of levels. So Patrick <laughs> Cooper liked it. Um and and Dread Central seemed to like it too. They said that it was tense and creepy but if you look at the IMDB rating like the user rating added up it's like a 3.8 which is pretty low and for me this thing I remember what I rated it at least even though I don't remember a lot about the film because it's so forgettable it was a 3.5 out of 10 it's a total avoid so if you see Treehouse the cover is a trap trust me it's one of those awful red box horror movies so don't watch it
2: (laughs) if anyone is still going to watch it (laughs) After that review, it is streaming for free
0: on Amazon Prime. Not even worth the time <laughs> of your life. I'm not joking. So there's that one. And I don't want to hog the time. So I'll, Josh, do you have something you want to talk about next?
2: Uh, sure. Um, I saw a movie called Christie that was on oh, a lot of people's lists
0: mm-hmm. for last
2: year. Uh, Bill Shetty was really high on this film. And I thought we could talk about. It. Have you guys? Have either of you guys seen Christie yet?
0: Not yet.
2: No, I have not. So I felt pretty similarly uh, about this film as I did with Girl House. It's a decent modern slasher. Um, it plays on a lot of classic tropes, but with a little bit of a technological twist for the for recent times. So basically, what you have is. This woman, uh, she's a college student, and everyone goes home for Thanksgiving break, and she stays. Um, she stays on campus by herself. Um, she's played by Haley Bennett, I believe, and um, her boyfriend is played by Lucas Till. He leaves, goes home for Thanksgiving, and she's alone on campus with two security guards, which, that in itself, is weird. Um, it's so small that like you're so clearly aware of who was there. There's just two people. We know that for sure, which is um, felt a little unbelievable, um, I guess to me, but um, she decides to go into town to get some treats at uh, the local gas station. And she drives her friends. um, I think it was a Beamer, but her, her friend is really rich. She's not. And so she takes her friend's super nice car into town to get some food. And she, at the convenience store, bumps into Ashley Green, uh, who's playing this really yeah. kind of intense, uh, kind of like um, industrial goth chick, who's you know got her hoodie pulled up over her head and has greasy black hair and piercings and and stuff. And and Haley Bennett's character is supposed to be really scared of of this intense chick that she runs into. <laughs> and Ashley green's character is pretty kind of just like belligerent and violent and stuff. But, um, they have this little confrontation in the convenience store. And, um, Ashley green from that point on is involved with a group of people who are stalking Justine and they are referring to her as Christy, as bill Shetty mentioned, uh, when, uh, he re- talked about this in his top 10 list. And the whole Christie angle is supposed to be, I guess, kind of be a twist, but it's, it, they tell you in the opening credits, I believe even what the point of the Christie thing is, or at least they, um, allude to it. I, I why they choose the name Christie is a little bit confusing to me with the spelling of Christie. If it was C H R I S T I E, I might get, uh, the idea a little bit more. And maybe that is still the point, but basically, they are they are choosing these people, um, and targeting them intentionally, and then it becomes this kind of slasher where you where you have almost this home invasion feel, but it's all happening kind of outside, of I and mean, around this college campus where she's kind of being stalked by a group of people all kind of hooded in in black and they're, they're all communicating to each other via cell phone and posting everything to this like live site where people are kind of following the action and it's okay. It's fine. Um, I didn't love it as much as a lot of people did. Um, I do think it's a good example of a modern, the kind of modern slasher I was talking about, um, earlier kind of inarticulately trying to explain. Um, I think this is, I, for me, it's about a six as well. And I would say it's worth a rental.
0: Okay. So you say Christie is a six and you say rent it. Yeah. I I was curious about it. So when you do find out the Christie thing, you said it doesn't make a ton of sense to you. And because that was one thing I was kind of interested in. Cause I Bill don't said think it's like it a cool.
2: big reveal. I, again, I believe they tell you in the first like minute of the movie, why they're calling them Christy. Okay. I don't think it's like a big, like, aha moment. There are a few ideas out there as the film progresses that make it bigger than just what we're seeing tonight. Like there are more people being targeted as Christie's and this is just one of them that we're seeing. I gotcha. But I don't think it's like a, it doesn't seem that meaningful to me. I don't get, I just didn't really care, I guess about why they were targeting them unless it's supposed to be appeal to the audience. Um, unless the people that they are targeting are supposed to be the audience for the film. And so that's supposed to make it more scary. I guess I could see that.
0: Well, um, just an update on that. So uh, when Bill Shetty get, put that in his top 10 on our yeah. show, episode 79, he had it listed at number seven, but he had since seen more movies and he updated his top 10 of 2015 list on his website horror on the and he ended up bumping this will you guys will find this interesting. So Christie is now 8th on his list but and he saw we are still here apparently and that went straight up to second place 8.5 out of 10 and then he bumped old 37 out to an honorable mention. So that's what happened there. Little update on Bill Shetty's top 10 list. So um but yeah, Christy's still in there on his list. Hmm. I'm glad you reviewed that. Cause I, I was interested in hearing another take on it.
2: It's a decent film. I'm trying to think of something really good to compare it to. Um, in some ways it reminded me more of like the purge or something than, um, a typical horror film.
0: I gotcha. Okay. Well, thank you. Yeah. What about this one? You guys, Uh there's a movie from 2016 called intruders No, this is not the Clive Owen Intruders from 2011. And um, there was another film. See, this Intruders right here that I'm talking about was originally titled Shut In. Okay, which I think is a way better title. And by the way, there is a film coming out later this year called Shut In, which is kind of intriguing to me. I'm not sure what kind of a genre flick it will be. That one's about a child psychologist. This is about a woman who is an agoraphobic. She has a fear of crowds and going outside. And so as the film opens, you've got this lady and her her brother dies of cancer. Not a spoiler, it's just the opening. And so she is there in the house alone and she does not want to leave the house. Well, um, this is a home invasion film because when, when it is assumed that she's at the brother's th- funeral these people come and try to rob the house and of course she is still in there right and all I can really say about it is that um, this is what it's really kind of hard to classify on some levels according to my the, the tone list right you know because and I can't go into that a whole lot but it's really interesting how you've got a, a singular protagonist character. And she's clearly a victim. So, on, on that respect, you know, it's a horror film, but like her, her victim slash victor aspect in this film is kind of like 50 50. So, that may, this film is another a perfect example of why it's a little tricky and a little mm-hmm. dicey. Um, but yeah, it's one of those films where, you know, Got some interesting things in store, a lot of little surprises, and I, I I think it's fun. It almost feels like more of um. It reminds me a lot of well, I, I'm not gonna say that. I I gotta be very careful because I don't want to spoil anything. But um, it just has some surprises to it. Let's just say that. How about that? It's it's a little bit suspenseful. It almost feels like more of a crime film. It feels a little bit more of um a thriller. Um, they do depict agoraphobia from a subjective point of view at one moment where you see it from her perspective. And it's very interesting. I was kind of impressed with that, but overall, I mean, I think by the time the film's over, you feel like you were mildly entertained and it's a 5.5 to me. It's like a rental, but um, nothing super special, but it's decent. The poster is awesome. Yeah. The poster is very good. (laughs) And I wish I could have said more, but honestly, um, there's not a lot to it, and if I would have said much more, it would have really started giving stuff away. So
2: the poster is one of my top fifty movie posters of all time. I, if I saw that, I would pick it up and buy it immediately.
0: Really? Yeah,
2: it's so rad looking.
0: Yeah, it it is, and and the uh, that that poster is somewhat representative of the film. It's not a hundred percent representative, unfortunately. Okay, so Doctor Shock, have you? Um, is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Because uh, Um, I have one more if you guys uh, don't, but
1: no, I, I, I'm getting, yeah, it's getting a little late here, but no, go for it, Jay.
0: Okay. Have
2: we ever talked about last shift or not?
0: Doc I brought
2: it, I think I brought it up, yes.
0: Do you want to go, go ahead, Wolfman, say, say what you got to say on that.
2: Um, have, have you guys reviewed it yet?
0: Dr. Shock did. Okay. But.
2: Um well I don't want to rehash it. I, I liked it okay again like I wasn't quite as blown away with it as everyone else was but I I could see it in there. Um I thought I put it in my honorable mentions but I couldn't find it on the site so um
0: I didn't I don't think I put up our honorable mentions.
2: Oh uh, so. okay that
1: might be so why. Well.
0: Forgive me everyone. I got lazy. Okay.
1: What what I liked what I liked about it I mean it starts off as your standard ghost you know your standard supernatural um, you know, doors opening and, and, and so forth. But what I really did like about it was the setting, you know, that, that police station. Um, yeah, it was a cool idea. And, and now everything that happened took her deeper into that police station. Yeah. You know, she's out at the front, she's at the front door where, you know, where you're feeling kind of safe because you think, okay, well, there's a the front door. I could just get out of here if I need to. And there's a scene where that actually happens. Yeah. Um, but every time something happens, she goes deeper and deeper into this thing and it puts you on edge. And I did like how they handled some of the, uh, the supernatural scenes.
2: Yeah, there were some really cool uh, little supernatural scenes that I liked a lot. Um, what was the other one I saw today? Oh, one of our listeners, Ian West, um, he shared a little short film with us today online. I'm trying to remember what it was called. It was called Lights Out. Did you see? Happen to see that? David? Oh, I haven't.
1: I haven't <laughs> seen it. I saw that it was on Twitter, wasn't it? That's yeah. that's the yeah, one. I, did, I haven't watched it yet, but I did see the link to it.
0: I'm, that's the one that they're making into the feature film this year. Right. So that's why I didn't watch the short film. I didn't want to be.
2: Didn't want to be spoiled?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
2: Yeah. It it was cool, <laughs> but it was so short, and I wonder what their plan is for turning that into a feature because it is really brief. But cool, and it looked like there might be, I didn't want to ask or spoil it, or I also didn't know if it was obvious to everyone else, but I thought there might be a little hint, like, oh, there's something deeper going on here. Um, Hmm. But I I don't want to talk about it, just in case.
0: I appreciate that. But yeah, we talked a little bit about the premise in our previous episode, and you said, I'm scared right now. Yeah, I love the premise. Oh,
2: that was that. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, I mean, it seems like... um, kind of like an it follows t- to the extent that it's like just a really clever smart back to basics horror idea.
2: It, it seems a little more gimmicky based on the short but totally effective. Like instantly afraid of the dark, totally effective.
0: Nice. Um
2: yeah, there's also a film one of our listeners mentioned Adam Lafferty on Twitter. Um Jay, I know you everyone knows you didn't like Unfriended. Uh, there's a film he says is the worst film he's ever seen, a 1 out of 10, 100% avoid this garbage. It's called Friend Request. So Oh, really? <laughs> go ahead and just avoid a friend friend request as well.
0: <laughs> oh, that's funny. Okay, I got I got one for you guys here for the road. This is just to send this off if you don't have anything else. And just for old time's sake because it's been so long. Maybe I'll I'll introduce it in the proper way. J of the Dead's Beastly Freaks. Okay, so for those of you who remember, Beastly Freak is my term, I guess, for like a a creature feature, right? And this is a Beastly Freak film called Indigenous, which came out uh, just this year, actually 2016. And, uh, and yes, for those who aren't familiar with this show, I have a lot of annoying ways for cla- classifying when films are released and what year they are Too, as you might have guessed. Anyways, <laughs> this has been described as a poor man's The Descent, and I think that is true. Um, this is basically The Descent, except in a jungle. Um, you got these American tourists who traveled to Panama and they go out to these water ball, waterfalls that are supposed to be forbidden in this part of the forest that like the locals won't even go into cuz it's dangerous for some reason and it's because these beastly freaks live there and they um basically rip you to shreds this is my kind of movie and like every single way like that premise I love that I'm like yes i I'm, I'm I am so on board for this movie but unfortunately it just takes the execution is very poor on this. It it takes a long time for them to really uh, show us very much. And um, it's just one of those things. There's a lot of arguing. There's a lot of running around in the forest. There's not a lot of showing us the good stuff. And it it is, it's just like um, a poorly done, the descent, But you know, so so there you go. I mean, that that's indigenous. I, I forget what I rated. I think I'm at like, a. I just saw it recently too. It's pathetic. I, I think I gave it like a 4.5 and I called it a, a low priority rental for indigenous. At this point in episode 81 of Horror Movie Podcast, you've got Jay of the Dead here and I'm recording this portion of the episode as a solo cast. Don't worry, we got some more. Reviews coming later. i got one more surprise for you. But first of all, I think I've come up with a name for my system that we talked about earlier. How about Jay of the Dead's Horror TNA? Get it? TNA. (laughs) But in this case, of course, by TNA, I mean Tone and Assignment. So to review really fast, when we parse out what a movie is, horror first, Western second, fantasy third. I call that horror classification. Now, Wolfman, he likes to call it genre breakdown. And um, I'd even go so far as to call it maybe subgenre breakdown or subgenre classification, whatever. But then the TNA part <laughs> is when we have to determine the tone or the characters that we're supposed to identify with. Mostly victims or mostly victors. And if they're victims, then it goes into the horror assignment, which is classic horror, hybrid horror, or primal horror. And if, it's, if they're mostly victors, then it's not a horror movie. That's my contention now. So, Wolfman and I have since talked a little more about this. And we have more or less decided that the... The assignment of fringe horror really shouldn't be a thing because if it has little enough horror, if it has just that much tiny bit of horror, then we feel good about saying that the movie has horror elements. My good friend Bill Shetty hates that phrase and um, I just can't figure out why. Wolfman Josh and I think it really describes it well and so we feel good about saying horror elements. And so, especially when it's not a horror movie per se. So, for example, if a film is 95% fantasy, and then it has like one or two horror elements, (laughs) then, you know, it's a fantasy. I wouldn't even call it fringe horror in that case. It's not really horror, especially if the characters that we're meant to identify with are not victims. So, Primal horror is the farthest out on the fringes, and otherwise, you know, we're going to call film whatever genre it is with horror elements. But the real reason that I'm recording this solo portion here is because I have to recommend that you go see a great new horror movie in theaters called The Boy from 2016.
4: We had a number of potential nannies come through already do you think you can manage of course I'm Malcolm hi I'm the grocery boy well grocery man <laughs> lead the way allow me to introduce mr. Hilter.
0: and this
3: is our son Brahms. <laughs>
0: <laughs> music gives him so much joy Brahms is not like other
4: children it is very important that you Follow these rules. Be good to him and he'll be good to you. No
3: offense, Bronson, creep me out. Dream
0: the boy was released on Friday, January 22nd, and I have to give you an incomplete genre classification here or a subgenre breakdown because if I classify all of its components, then I'd be bringing attention to some of the surprising directions that this movie goes in. So, we don't spoil movies here on Horror Movie Podcast, so I'm just going to classify it as an evil doll slash evil kid movie with a supernatural haunted house type of feel to it. And as for the tone, the main character, who's played by Lauren Cohen, who is Maggie on The Walking Dead, she is a victim and not a victor. So, this is... A horror movie, um, and as for its horror assignment, it falls into the classic horror designation for me. That's where I would assign it because even if it's just a blend of different horror subgenres, that's something that we uh, forgot to talk about earlier. Um, so, what I'm saying that if you've got classic horror subgenres, then it's not a hybrid; it's just classic horror. So, just to give you an example of that, let me just parse this out a little bit further and then we'll keep on moving if you're sick of hearing about this. We're not going to do this in every single episode like this, but if a movie is a vampire slash haunted house slash werewolf movie, something like that, even though it's a blend of those different subgenres of horror, I would still just call that classic horror because it has the classic components and not hybrid horror. Hybrid horror, remember is when we have a totally different genre combined. Like you'd have a western slash horror slash comedy. Therefore, to review The Boy here, it is a horror movie because its tone is established by having a protagonist that we, the audience, are supposed to relate to. And she is a victim for the majority of the film, of course. So the horror assignment for The Boy is classic horror. And because it's... On the surface, classified with a sub-genre breakdown of a evil doll, evil kid, supernatural, haunted house movie, um, that's right where I'll put it. So, I, again, I won't always spend so much time on that, but this is a new theory, this whole horror TNA <laughs> for this episode, and I just wanted to demonstrate how it works in a real-world movie-reviewing context. Okay, so here's the premise to The Boy. Lauren Cohen plays an American gal from Montana, and she wants to break away from her old life and spend some time as a nanny in England. So she travels to England where she's hired by a rich old couple to look after their young son, Brahms. (laughs) I love that name, Brahms. It's perfect. But when she arrives to meet Brahms, as you'll see in the trailer, he is not actually a real boy. Brahms is just a doll that the old people treat like a real living boy. So Lauren Cohen's nanny character is commissioned to stay in this big empty house taking care of Brahms while the old parent couple goes on a trip for a few days. But she is given rules that she must follow in order to properly care for Brahms. And as she is told, if she's good to Brahms, he'll be good to her. I love this stuff. So I'm going to leave it at that as far as the premise goes. Now, one thing that I'm happy to report here is that the trailer doesn't reveal as much about this film as it seems to. I was so sad when I first saw the trailer because the first 20 to 30 seconds are perfect. I was so pumped. And then I just felt like it gave away too much after that. But there's more to this movie than there seems to be at first blush. And so I think it's very rewarding. For those who will take the ride. Now, I want you to know a couple of points about this movie. But again, I will not spoil it for you. In fact, I hope you go see this as soon as possible in the theater before some idiot spoils it for you. And don't worry, I will not be that idiot. <laughs> so when I saw The Boy on opening night, I went to the late late showing, the 10.30ish p.m. showing on Friday night January 22nd and there were tons of teenagers there they were rambunctious and obnoxious teenagers who were in big groups and I think they saw that trailer you know with the doll and they had planned to attend the late showing so they could pull some mystery science theater 3000 on this movie where they make jokes and try to amuse each other and impress each other and Anyway, um, they were so loud and so crazy and obnoxious that the theater manager actually stepped into the theater before the film began and warned everyone to be quiet and to be considerate. Well, of course, they initially were not quiet or considerate, but the boy quieted them down really fast. So that's the first point I think that speaks to the effectiveness of this film. And even though it is Admittedly, a slow burn, which I usually don't appreciate, the audience and I were instantly pulled into the film and curious about what was going to happen. And by the way, side note, by the end of the film, they were all very pleased. I heard some great reactions from this young crowd. So, if you haven't guessed already, I'm here to sell this film to you. But let me describe some non-spoiler ways that this film is well made and a great experience. Number one, The boy was directed by William Brent Bell and was written by Stacey Menear. Now to be honest, not all of Bell's previous horror films have been well loved because after all, he directed stay alive, which is one of the first films I've ever reviewed, you know, for my college newspaper and I hated it. And then there's the devil inside, which I know got panned quite a bit, but that is a creepy trailer, by the way, pretty effective trailer. Um, Bell also directed Ver, or WER, W-E-R, that werewolf movie, which I know a lot of people liked, and I still have not gotten to see yet, but having seen The Boy, man, I'm going to see WER. I know you guys told me to see it. It's on the list. So I'm actually excited to see what else William Brent Bell comes up with, and I'm looking forward to more of his films. I will be watching his career with interest, as they say. As for Stacy Maneer, this was his feature film writing debut. So, you know, and it was fine to me. I I actually enjoyed the writing here. So, the film looks great too. I mean, according to Box Office Mojo, it had a production budget of 10 million dollars, which is a lot for a horror movie. In fact, you know, 1 to 3 million is really good for a horror movie budget and Uh, Mojo indicates that it made back its budget on opening weekend with nearly $11 million domestic there. But to date, which, you know, I'm recording this on January 31st, (laughs) uh, it had an estimated $21.5 million thus far. So the film is doing pretty well. It made back its budget. And I won't reveal anything, of course, about the ending, but like almost every other horror movie, this could very easily have a sequel. It's possible they could do that. But I think it would need to be a much different film from what we see here in this primary film. Number four. As I said, the film looks great. It was shot by a um, DP who's no stranger to horror filmmaking. His name is Daniel Daniel Pearl. Now he's got a lot of horror film credits to his filmography as a director of photography and I'm not going to name them all here but let me just give you a sampling because I want you to know what we're dealing with. Daniel Pearl was the cinematographer for The Apparition, Friday the 13th from 2009, Aliens vs. Predator, Requiem, Captivity, Frankenstein which is that TV movie from 2004 with Parker Posey in it and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 2003. But that's just some of the newer stuff. He actually filmed A Return to Salem's Lot, as well as Larry Cohen's It's Alive 3, Island of the Alive. And coincidentally, this is kind of weird, he filmed a movie that Wolfman Josh just talked about earlier in this episode, Full Moon High from 1981. He was the DP for that movie. So, but here this... This is my trump card right here, everybody. The real reason you should recognize Daniel Pearl's name is he was the director of photography for the greatest horror film ever made, which was his debut feature film, his first time, and it was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974. So all you naysayers out there who are dogging on the boy, I saw you doing it on the Movie Podcast Weekly message boards, Juan. Let's show a little respect here. This movie comes from horror filmmaking royalty, Daniel Pearl. Okay. So number five, I'm just, you know, I'm just messing. So number five, the boy has the atmosphere, right? You know, it looks great, as I said, but it also matches in tone. Like the tone is very creepy and this may be overstating it for some people, but I think this is a rare modern horror movie that actually builds suspense. This has genuine tension in it. I mean, that is so refreshing. And you get the sense that William Brent Bell and Stacey Manier have seen some Hitchcock films, and they've taken some inspiration and tried to incorporate it in this movie. I'm not saying that The Boy is a Hitchcock film, but I'm saying that I think its filmmakers have definitely watched some Hitchcock in their days. So, take that. No, I'm just kidding. But number six, though, quick note on the casting here and the performances. Lauren Cohen is extremely watchable, as you all know. I mean, first of all, she's beautiful and very photogenic. The camera is always up in her face. And it reminds me of the way that um, the camera does that. They really film Elizabeth Olsen really close during Silent House as well. So, you know, the camera is always just... (laughs) just watching and loving her face. And um, I enjoyed her performance as well in this film. I mean, I think that she has a very tough job here. In fact, any of the actors that um, have to interact with the doll, I mean, she sees the doll. She thinks it's funny and a little bit absurd. And then she's a little bit cynical and almost incredulous and disrespectful about this older parent couple and how they're reacting to the doll and treating it real, you know, like it's the real thing. A real kid. And the older couple, by the way, they're played very well by Jim Norton and Diana Hardcastle. So I was very pleased with the casting in this as well. The actors sell the movie, and the fact that they have to interact with this, essentially it's a prop, you know, it's just the doll, and either treat it like it's real or treat it like it's scary, you know, that's a tall order for most actors, I would say. And I know it is just a prop, but in this film and this is credit to the filmmakers, they actually managed to turn the prop into a real character to the extent that he becomes much more than just a MacGuffin. Now, for those who aren't aware, a MacGuffin, of course, is that term that they use to describe like a plot element that's merely in the story as kind of a contrivance or an engine that helps move the the plot along. But this film circles around the Brahms doll, and because the film enables him to take on an actual character's presence in the film, especially among the other characters. Um, because it enables it to do that without doing anything like cheesy or ridiculous, I just think this is an, an impressive and commendable movie. Now, obviously, as I'm suggesting here, And as you'll gather from the trailer, if you watch it, the huge mystery of this movie surrounds the nature of this doll and whether the old couple have good reason for treating it like it's a living, sentient being. What is going on with this doll? Yeah, I mean, that's the mystery, and you'll pick that up from the trailer. The the doll is very mysterious. It's a great mystery that way, too. But there are other elements that I think make this film work well for me. So, for instance, we learn that Lauren Cohen's character, like most horror movie protagonists, fits that mold that I've talked about many times, where horror happens to those who deserve it least, and the same is true for her. We learn about her dark past, and this creepy experience here with Brahms is the last thing she needs for her peace of mind. I mean, she came to England to try to find some peace, right? So she's truly a victim in this film. And as you'll see, she's a victim in multiple ways, which is just fantastic. And as you'll also see in the trailer, Brahms has rules, right, that the nanny must follow. The parents um, give her these rules in order to take care of him properly. Now, I was worried about this aspect of the film, but these rules turn out to work very well by the time, you know, you've seen the whole film when it's all said and done As you know, anytime there are rules given in movies, the rules are broken, and when they're broken, there's hell to pay. And naturally, it's no different here, and it's fun to see how all that plays out. Now, speaking of rules, The Boy is the kind of movie where you wonder if it plays fair and follows its own rules, and I believe it does. Like within the world or the universe of the film, it's the kind of movie that you'll watch once, and then if you like it, which I hope you do, then you'll want to watch it at least one more time just to see the film again as you understand it having 100% full context of what's happening here in this story. Now, I said over on our sister show, Movie Podcast Weekly, I said this over there, but I feel like The Boy is a horror film for people who typically don't like horror films. Believe it or not, I mean, if if anybody is familiar with my situation, my wife does not appreciate horror films, not even a little bit, and um, she's anti-horror film, in fact, and I tried to talk her into seeing this, because I think it's just tremendous, and she said no, of course, but I told her the whole story, you know, spoilers and all, and what happens, and she actually loved it, so I just, you know, that should really say something to you out there, if you're familiar with my situation, so there's not a lot of gore or violence, and it's not overly evil spirited, like evil spirited per se, but it's genuinely creepy, and it's atmospheric. So, if you need, you know, this upcoming October, if you need to rent a good movie for like the Halloween season, and you're going to be showing it to mixed company, then this is a really safe choice. It's effective and good. Good movie and it's pretty safe. Now, that's not to say that it's a weak horror film or a kiddie horror film, because I do think it's scary. And I think, um, above all, that it has some deeply unsettling horror themes, which I wish I could discuss more here. But, you know, I don't want to go into spoilers, of course. But I do recommend seeing The Boy in the theater, of course. But if you're listening to this review after it has already left theaters, then be sure that you watch it on a great home entertainment system with like some killer audio and surround sound because when this movie picks up and gets intense toward the end, the sound design is very rewarding in a theater setting. But overall, as you can tell, I loved The Boy. I think it's a great horror movie, and I'll be very surprised... If this film isn't somewhere in my top 10 of 2016 horror list at the end of the year. So Jay of the Dead here rates The Boy from 2016. I rated it a 8.5 out of 10. I say see it in the theater and I say buy it. And just two more quick notes and then I'll just have one final surprise for you. We got a surprise review. I saw the trailer for Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and I was very displeased. If you haven't seen this yet, or if you don't even want to know about the trailer, maybe you could allow me to take 60 seconds and tell you what the tone of this thing appears to be uh, gathering from the trailer, at least. Okay, so naturally, it's going to be set in the Jane Austen era, you know, except with zombies. But this thing looks like it's going to be an action horror, you know, like a hybrid horror (laughs) flick it's going to have that action horror flavor because these socialite ladies in dresses are actually lethal, hardcore, michon-like zombie-killing machines, okay? And so it's ridiculous. Not that I don't think girls are tough because trust me, they are. I'm going to tell you in a minute about a, a tough listener to Horror Movie Podcast who's a gal, and I'll tell you about her in just a second. But I think that this will have a similar flavor to something like Hansel and Gretel, Witch Hunters from 2013, which is not my hybrid horror preference, but maybe it's yours. So maybe you're excited about that. I am not. I just wish it had been truly set in the world of like the BBC Pride and Prejudice. Now, don't lie. I know you've all watched it too. You've seen that. You know what I'm talking about. Don't act like you don't, (laughs) right? So, but, But in that world, like a world of ultra-realism except add zombies and they're all freaked out and scared out of their minds, right? I would have loved to have seen this thing be set in a hyper-realistic world like that, but no such luck. And if that makes you as sad as it makes me, I have these two last little things to cheer you up. So um, if you check out the show notes here for episode 81 of Horror Movie Podcast, you can find it at horrormoviepodcast.com. Um, you will see a couple of things. We got a chart there for Jay's horror TNA. Maybe it can, you know, you can visualize it a little bit easier with the chart. We also have a a great photo of a listener named Holly, who's a horror movie podcast fan, and she's wearing her HMP green t-shirt. So I wanted to thank Holly for sending in that photo. I was having a a horrible day. (laughs) The day that you sent that in, And it made it all better for me. So everybody check that out. Holly looks great in that new shirt. I love to see her wearing the the colors. So that's great. Anyway, at this point, in order to wrap up this episode, we have one final segment for you, which I think you will find very enjoyable. We've got Wolfman Josh bringing you some coverage of the 2016 Sundance Film Festival as he reviews a movie called Green Room with William Rowan Jr., a.k.a. Kill Bill Kill of the Sci-Fi Podcast. And so without any further delay, I'll cut to their recording now.
2: Alright, at this point in the show, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Sundance Film Festival 2016. Um, It was a good year, it looks like. I didn't get to see many movies. I did not see the Rob Zombie film 31, but I did get to see the new film from Jeremy Saulnier, who I'm a huge fan of um you'll know especially if you listen to movie podcast weekly but even on this show we talked about blue ruin quite a bit and we've reviewed uh his first film murder party well which is definitely a horror comedy the other one is more of a just a gritty revenge film i would say green room there is some discussion as to whether or not that's a horror movie and so i think just because this guy has made a horror film we kind of it's something worth looking at when he has a new release. And this film is definitely very intense, very gritty as well. I would say somewhere in the tone of uh, blue ruin and for my money, not necessarily a horror movie, but I'm bringing in a special guest to talk about this with me who may have a different point of view. Um, we got to see the movie together at Sundance and uh, that is our special guest. Kill bill, kill, otherwise known as William Solo Jr. on the Sci-Fi Podcast. Welcome.
4: Thanks for having me back. This is great. I'm excited.
2: This is one I was really looking forward to. Um, a lot of it was because of the director, J- Jeremy Saulnier, who I'm a huge fan of, but also um, some of the cast. Anton Yelchin and Mark Webber are two of my favorite actors of their generation. I was really looking forward to seeing them, as well as Macon Blair, who was the star of Blue Ruin, Um, and then I thought, I thought that Lu Pucci was in it based on some press materials I had seen. And to be honest, I even thought he was in it for a lot of the movie, but it turns out that was actually Joe Cole, who I guess people who watch Peaky Blinders will recognize Joel Cole. But I thought that was, um, I thought that was someone different. I thought that was Lu Pucci from spring. So anyway, uh, the cast did not disappoint. And especially I was a little bit worried when I saw that Patrick Stewart was cast in the film. Obviously, he's an excellent actor, but he just is a kind of a step more recognized than the rest of the cast. And so I was afraid he would kind of pull us out of the realism that I was expecting from the director of Blue Ruin. But I did not find that to be the case either. So basically, what we have here is that amazing cast. Um, And within them, you have a punk rock band from Maryland on the road on a kind of DIY uh, tour. And they end up in Oregon to play a show uh, for kind of a group of mostly neo-Nazi skinheads. And um, it sort of creates all these interesting tensions that you and I would recognize growing up in the punk scene between kind of punks and skins, which that I just loved that element of it. But also, you know, the places it goes are pretty horrific arguably horror uh heavy on the terror and the dread and so i thought it was really exciting to see that played out um and really riveting what were your thoughts on green room
4: i agree with everything you've said if you like blue ruin it i think it still has that same kind of feel you could tell it's the same director i think it's shot beautifully it's lit beautifully um the tone is is great and uh I absolutely enjoyed every second of the film I I mean it was high intense absolutely crazy uh you know crazy things happen but um yeah it's it, and it, and it's extreme if you're not if you don't know you're in for it you know maybe if you if you have someone who's not uh maybe a little on the sensitive side with uh seeing too much uh blood or I don't know, it's gore, but it's definitely violence. Um yeah. You know, they'll they'll be a little surprised, maybe uncomfortable.
2: Well and it was similar with Blue Ruin, I think for a general audience the violence in it is shocking for if you're expecting a horror movie, it maybe isn't um out of the realm of what your expectations might be. But the the thing is is that the director sets it in such a realistic world. It doesn't feel like any kind of hyper-reality. It feels really naturalistic and raw. And so that violence is all the more shocking.
4: Yeah, I totally agree with that. I would just say that to, I'm hoping, I'm just hoping that to most people, they would have never seen this world. So it might seem out there like something completely made up or, does this really? Ex- I could see someone saying, "Is this a real thing? Are there places like this? Is this is this something that actually happens anymore?" And because it's it is a very intense, potent, extreme you know subculture of of these skinhead you know racists. Do you think a lot of people would think like, "Oh, I, every town we've got one you know over there," and you know, on? I
2: don't know. I mean, I know that when we were growing up in the punk scene, it was not uncommon to see skinheads at punk shows. And it was always like a danger element. It was always like, oh, these guys came here to fight or to mosh or to cause trouble. And it was there was oftentimes big brawls at the shows and oftentimes yep. the bands would... You know, start screaming at the crowd and tell them to beat up the Nazis and throw them out of the show. I mean, those kinds of things happened a lot.
4: I guess I just never thought in my head that they went back to a warehouse in the middle of nowhere where, like, an older leader, you know, like, indoctrinated them and told them how to proceed and organize themselves. But yeah, I mean,
2: that's very common in California. That's very common in in strongholds for white supremacists, and I don't know what. That looks like in Maryland, where the director's from. Um, But this movie takes place in Oregon. And as you and I both also know, in the Pacific Northwest, northern Idaho is really heavy with um, neo-Nazi. Seattle is really heavy with that. I'm assuming Oregon as well. And so there are these little pockets of it. I mean, yeah. When I lived in Holland, I'll tell you there were some hardcore skinheads in Holland. The, they're a little closer to the real Nazis over there. But um, so they, they exist. I don't know to what extreme they exist, but this felt for, to me extremely realistic. Um uh, this, yeah. this depiction of this world.
4: Sure. Well, you know, and so we went to the to uh, you know, Sundance special screening where there was a QA after where we had some extra insight when the director kind of explained his thinking. And I remember being very surprised because I hadn't thought of this when I watched it, but he described that he s- set out to make a war movie. Do you remember this?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That was, that is exactly what he said. Um, and I thought that was interesting. I mean, to set this up a little bit for our audience, you know, they're familiar with terms like siege narrative because that's one of Jay's favorite, Uh, distinctions. And this is definitely a siege narrative. I mean, it's entirely almost, Um, you know, on this particular episode that we're, that this is for Jay has just gone into his extremely long definition of horror. And one of the things that he talked about is, are your main characters, the victors or the victims? And if they're victims, then it's a horror movie. And if they're victors, it might not be. And um, like a lot of movies, this kind of shifts tonally but I would say for the most of the film, they are victims. And so I think this, for that reason also may qualify as a horror film. You mentioned Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I thought was interesting.
4: Well, and and this is where I kind of was going. So it's interesting when you have the, the writer and director and creator and, and, and you know, the creative powerhouse behind it, tell you what they were going for. I immediately was just like, oh, okay, I'm a, I am I must have been wrong or I, I wasn't doing, th- I hadn't done that. And I had projected. Yeah. These these horror um, cliches or tropes that, you know, which weren't cliches at the start, like with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Friday the 13th. You know, you have a young group of kids out on their own being wild, you know, and I'm not describing the movie here. I'm describing these tropes. Um, You know, they find themselves in an unfamiliar, unsettling place. Uh, Things start happening that are that are unexplainable or horrific. And then, of course, there's usually isolation. They're trapped. Um, from the rest of society or their safety nets or ways to get to the, you know, authorities or parents. And then of course they're picked off one by one. There's a lot of blood violence and deaths in horrific ways. And then often some sort of lone survivor. And so for me, I was like, oh, well I have, I, I have not seen, anywhere near the amount of movies as a Jay of the Dead and Wolfman Josh. But I have seen more than most. And what I just described to me in general, because I'm not trying to represent the horror community is something that is found in a lot of, of horror movies. And I had, that's, I immediately was projecting that I had that kind of experience watching uh green room. I thought it was totally trying to, Homage or follow that formula, but i, I guess I—I I might be unique there. What do you think?
2: I mean, I didn't have that experience. I thought it was very intense, but I guess I was so locked into that this was a Jeremy Saulnier film, it didn't feel unlike Blue Ruin to me. It felt very similar. I was really—I was really hung up on the world because I had just—I was kind of geeking out the whole time that oh my gosh, like I've never seen the punk world depicted this realistically and I was so excited about that fact you know and so that was playing heavily into my experience as well um i don't know i was kind of hyper vigilant the whole time i didn't even though the movie had a huge impact on me i don't think it had as much as it would have if i was just letting it wash over me i was really paying close attention to all the details because i was so Mm. excited about everything that was going on it didn't like one thing i talked about on this episode is does it pass the sniff test for horror like to me it just doesn't feel like a horror movie it feels like but it feels more intense than just your average thriller yeah. And so, you know, it's probably what Jay would refer to as some sort of primal horror, survival horror. Maybe it's fringe horror, but it's it's very real people in very dire circumstances. And the situation keeps escalating and escalating. And what are they going to do about it? And that's an exciting situation to be put in, however you're going to categorize it.
4: Well, sure. I mean, yeah, categorize it any way you want, but I am attracted to this kind of story and this kind of setup for a reason. It's the same things that I'm attracted to in whatever horror subgenres that you want to label them. I'm pretty sure like, there's going to be certain formulas that are the ones that I love the most are going to have it, and this has it. I mean, I loved thinking about it as a war movie after the director described that because it added an extra layer <clears throat> that I wasn't really um, thinking about and that made it even better. I mean, I was really trying to think like, wow, that's interesting mixing that that point of view into into what I had experienced and, and see where that was going to take me. So, I, you know, any way you want to experience it, I, I think it's going to be a crazy ride. It's worth it.
2: Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, I think I mostly was looking at it as a siege narrative. Um, but then rather than zombies or whatever, rather than home invaders, you have this kind of very specific situation of these punks and skinheads. And that was so cool to me. Yeah. I I, I just wanted to watch it again. As soon as I was done watching, I was like, oh, I wish I had the Blu-ray. I'd go home and watch this like 10 times in a row. <laughs> yeah. But I'll have to wait on that. So uh, Green Room for me was just an incredible experience. Obviously I've, I've talked a lot about it. You can probably guess that I, I was positive on this film. Um, I actually posted on Facebook, a photograph of the director doing the Q and a and on Twitter. Um, I'm just going to read what I said. I said a lot of this already, but I just wanted to, uh, read exactly what I said on the pod or on my post. I said, Uh, Sonya grew up in the punk scene and captures it faithfully, perfectly depicting the classic tension between punks and skins while also delivering a thrilling movie that will gut you. Sitting in the theater last night on the edge of my seat, the dread and near horror was overcome by the feeling that someone had made a movie just for me. And that's exactly how I felt. I I loved it. And it was pretty cool. Um, The director actually responded to that Facebook post, and he said, wow, that's exactly what I hoped for. That's exactly my approach to filmmaking. And I believe if you target just you and you, your few close friends, you can reach thousands, if not millions, and make the same personal cinematic connections. So, in a way, this film was made just for you. Thanks for coming out. It was a great screening. So, I thought that was pretty wow. awesome.
4: That's cool, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How often does that happen? You know, can you say that you, you know, you write something on social media about someone who's, you know, like not, I don't know, famous, but doing something big and that they, make it personal. They respond to you personally and there's like, makes it personal for you. That's just cool.
2: No, I think that's, what's great about social media. And I think it's, what's cool. That's why I like interacting with our audience. Um, I'm always very appreciative when um, someone reaches out to me that way. So yeah, I like it.
4: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I loved it. So I can't recommend it enough. Uh, I can't remember. Do you guys do Do you do you ratings?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I was going to give my rating recommendation, then I remembered that Facebook thing once. I'm going to just give it a 10 out of 10 and go ahead and say buy it. And it's going to be coming out in theaters in a couple months, uh, so I would say go see it in the theater and then get that Blu-ray, because it's going to be worth it.
4: And I couldn't agree more. Uh, it's definitely a 10 out of 10. I'm going to see it uh, in theaters again, because I think it's important to support this kind of level of filmmaking and filmmaker. Um, and then I'm going to buy it. And then I would just say, just keep in mind, you know, it's, it's violent and however you want to categorize it there, you know, it's intense and violent and, but I think it's done beautifully uh, like a masterpiece in that kind of genre. So just so you know, in you're case talking
2: you to the horror podcast people.
4: Yeah, so they're not yeah, afraid. They're, they're, not, they're
2: not afraid. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks so much for joining us. You're, of course, one of my many co-hosts over at MovieStreamcast.com. Where else do you want people to check you out?
4: If you want to check me out, please go to the SciFiPodcast.com. All things science fiction at the SciFiPodcast.com. That's with uh, Matroid and his wife Station, and also uh, I'm on the uh, one of the more recent episodes of the Movie Podcast Weekly with Jade the Dead, and that's episode 172, and we cover The Revenant. And uh, as far as that goes, that's what I've been doing lately.
2: Cool. And we discussed The Revenant in terms of whether that counted as horror or not. What would be your uh, vote on that?
4: Uh, I did not uh, feel like that was totally horror. I felt like that was more just survival, you know, like, I know survival survival can be in horror, but I didn't I just think this is just kind of like, you know, survivor action with some, you know, intense moments. I, I wouldn't have thought of it as horror. So I guess maybe the way you thought of Green Room is how I thought of Revenant.
2: Awesome. All right. Big thank you to Kill
0: Bill Kill. Thanks, man. See ya. <sighs> okay, guys, anything else? See anything else?
1: That's it for this week. Okay.
0: Yeah, I think think that'll do me. All right. Well, I think that just about wraps up episode 81 of Horror Movie Podcast. If anybody has the schedule up in front of you, do you want to tease what we're doing for next week? So I believe
2: next week is our beginning of our Phantasm crossover, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I think you're right about that. So yeah, so um in episode 82, we're going to begin our Phantasm franchise review, which is a crossover with the Sci-Fi podcast. So in our next episode, if everybody wants to follow along with us and be up on this, of course we'll be covering full-blown spoilers on these. We're going to review Phantasm from 1979 and Phantasm 2 from 1988 and really excited about that and then in the following episode technically the three and four if we can find those films for less than $80 we're going to review those over on the sci-fi podcast as part of our crossover so everybody make sure they join us there for that and uh, I just want to thank my good buddies here uh, Wolfman Josh and Dr. Shock for being here thank the listeners for tuning in and uh, Dr. Shock, tell the listeners where they can find more of your work on the internet this week.
1: Uh, well, as always, the uh, you can go over to um, DVDinfatuation.com, my, uh, my uh, movie blog. Um, I think today uh, was 1983. So I am closing in quickly <laughs> on number 2000. Wow. I'm uh, just about, well, I guess little over two weeks away so at some point toward the beginning of February um, I'll be hitting uh, number 2000 Um, and from there it's uh, yeah it's it's all downhill from there I guess Uh, and uh, you can check me out on Twitter at DVD infatuation I do have a Facebook page you just look it up on uh, you know look up DVD infatuation on Facebook uh, and you can hear me on the Land of the Creeps podcast, where we're actually starting something a little new now. We're, we're going to start going through the decades, um, and we're going to be sort of looking at what we consider the uh, the, uh, the important films of uh, the 1920s we're starting with. Mm. And um, our first episode is going to be um, Nosferatu and the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And what we're going to do is we're going to mix it in. Like, we're going to have one episode for the 20s, and then the next episode we'll go back to, like, some more modern horror. Um, so it'll be, like, one episode per month because uh, it's a bi-weekly podcast. And we're going to stay in the 1920s for several months, actually, because we're going to be looking at the movies of Lon Chaney Sr. Um, you know, sort of uh, delve into, um, the like... I guess his big movies, *The Hunchback of Notre Dame* and *The Phantom of the Opera*, but also some of his lesser-known films, uh, movies like *The Gollum, We'll take a look at *The Man Who Laughed, or the um, you know things like that. Um, and it's it's really interesting. I like the way uh, that the, the, the Greg Greg Mortis is setting it up. So uh, you'll uh, you'll want to check it out, especially with the first one. We're getting into what would I I consider the two biggest horror films. Um, Of the 20s in Nosferatu in the cabinet of Dr. Caligari.
0: Excellent. That sounds really interesting. Yeah. That's great. Tell those guys we said hi. I really like I certainly
1: will. Certainly
0: will. They're good pals. Um, Mm -hmm. What about you, Wolfman Josh? What do you want to promote?
2: Just that we are going to be having some more discussions in the future based on what our listeners want to hear. And so um, we've been getting a lot of requests over the years to cover horror comedy, and as Dave mentioned earlier, we are going to be doing a big horror comedy episode. I did um, put a call out on the message boards, and Dave and I also tweeted out uh, that we were looking for listeners to recommend what horror comedies mattered the most to them, because as I was kind of like compiling films that we could talk about for each episode, I I realized that's a very difficult one to uh, to um, Delineate in terms of genre classification. And so a lot of people answered that request. And I'm actually going to compile, do a Jay of the Dead thing here and compile all of the listener responses and provide like a listener list of their favorite. I asked for people to mention their top four horror comedy films if you'd like to do that still before we're not going to do that for a couple more episodes still so you have time you can leave that in the comments at horrormoviepodcast.com or tweet one of us um, and we'll compile that information um, other than that yeah just just uh, podcasting at, at moviestreamcast.com and the sci-fi podcast helping them out producing over there and I'm looking forward to Turbo Kid is uh, coming out on Blu-ray um, this week, so that's going nice. to be exciting. Nice. Um, looking forward to that, and uh, that's about it. I Oh, two birthdays the week of this recording that are significant. John Carpenter's uh, birthday was this week, mm. and yes. David Lynch's birthday was this week. Yes. Wow. And um, I wished John Carpenter a happy birthday uh, via Twitter and Facebook, and he actually responded to me on Facebook and oh, said, thank nice. you. So I thought that was kind of nice. That's awesome. I made my day. Uh, Absolutely. I see uh, an update on my Facebook that said, John Carpenter replied to your comment.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know, they just let it didn't matter what he said, he could have even, just, you know, he could have said, okay, it wouldn't matter. Yeah. It's just it's John Carpenter replying. That's, that's yeah. great.
0: <laughs> That's hilarious. I love it. And I'm sure it made his day, too, that you remembered his birthday. Yeah. Um, he was like,
2: I can't believe the Wolfman Josh remembered that it was my birthday. He <laughs> this was, is so cool.
0: He was jumping up and down. <laughs> wow. Bragging oh. about it to his friends. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, and I just hope that people will check out um, Movie Podcast Weekly. It's uh, a good time over there. We have a lot of fun we love your comments so uh get involved at the horror movie podcast community where we have like up in the three hundreds of comments i'm seeing it's just insane i love it it's just about time for a forum or something because this is this is getting nuts it really is but I, i i'm so grateful for all of you who contribute and if you haven't contributing honestly like if you think you get stuff out of this show which I hope you do you can get way more way more gold out of the comments because they review things there they give recommendations they make fun of us and it's just hilarious so uh, check out the horror movie podcast community at the comment boards at horrormoviepodcast.com and, um, you know, send us an email at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com or a voicemail at 801 382 8789. You can find all of our past episodes, including the weekly horror movie podcast and horror metropolis, at our site horrormoviepodcast.com. You can subscribe free in iTunes or you can follow us on Twitter at horrormoviecast. I want to thank Fred Ingram for the use of his music for the horror movie podcast theme song. And you can find more of Fred's music at frederickingram.com. That'll be linked in the show notes for this episode. And so I think that's it here for episode 81. Um, I just want to give one more request to people and everybody who's contributed to the Horror Movie Podcast financially. We appreciate you. So this doesn't apply to you, but everyone else who wants to support the vitality. In the future of this show, our annual dues are coming up to pay for our storage space in March, and we could use your help because it gets expensive. So if you want to donate through PayPal, even if you donate $1, I'm not even joking, it will help us out because if everybody donated a dollar, then we could pay our dues for like the next, with the listenership of this show, probably in the next mm, five to seven years. (laughs) So... So honestly, that'd be wonderful. You can find our PayPal at moviepodcastweekly.com in the right-hand side scroll down. I know that's weird, but it's our sister show and it goes directly to benefiting this show as well. So thank you for listening and join us again Friday after next for Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies.